Hey everybody, that was Rain Ash. I am Bo Ransdell, and this, believe it or not, is Hero Hero Go Show. I know it's been a, uh, a, a bit since last we spoke, but we're back, and with a twofer. The one difference that you're going to find between this show and the previous shows is we don't have a middle piece, uh, you know, diving into some little tidbit of Japanese culture this time around. Mostly because the conversation that I ended up having with my guest today, Jerry Herring, went on for over two hours. Uh, but, but folks, there is a G-Spot episode, and I think it is the uh, the funniest one that we have done so far. So, uh, at any rate, if you are uh, a subscriber to the Devour the Podcast feed, then you are getting this show in its entirety for the, the first time. Um, I apologize if you did not expect it. I tried to make it clear uh, over on the uh, the Facebook page. Um, and another thing for listeners of the show uh, who were subscribers to the Hero Hero Go Show page, you may not have seen this, but long and short of it was, uh, after taking over the Devour the Podcast show, um, I wanted to simplify my life a little bit, and I'm kind of combining these two things. So technically... Hero Hero Go Show is sort of a Devour the Podcast presents Hero Hero Go Show. But it is its own thing. It'll be the same show that you're used to. Like I said, we're not going to do the uh, the interstitial business this time around. But other than that, it's going to be just what you're used to. And uh, next time we'll, we'll get into uh, the more educational stuff. Um, but that out of the way, uh, if you want to join in and, and chit-chat with the, uh, the Facebook side of things, then uh, hop on over to uh, uh, devour the podcast uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash devour the podcast also if you want to get in touch with me directly you can hit me up on the twitter at legion podcasts um i think that's it i think that's enough uh messing around and uh i say we get right to it today we are talking about two uh japanese splatter films uh, meatball machine and meatball machine kodoku or Kodoku Meatball Machine, depending on uh, your your grammar. Um, but at any rate, we're going to be talking about those films. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, with Court on the G-spot. It's just a bunch of stuff. And I, I, it turns out the conversation with Jerry, even though it was about Meatball Machine and the sequel, uh, really became a lot more about Japanese horror in general and some of the troublesome things with Japanese horror and also some of the really delightful things. So, uh, at any rate, enough uh, out of me by myself right now. Let us uh, waste no more time. Let's talk about Meatball Machine <laughs> ah, Meatball Machine, and Meatball Machine Kodoku. Um, the uh, Right on the Heels sequel to Meatball Machine, of course. Uh, only about a 12-year break in between. Here to help me make some kind of sense of the goings-on uh, of these films, is Jerry Herring, uh, who you will know from uh, Kill the Cast, uh, both uh, you know available on iTunes and over at legionpodcasts.com, and a show uh, sort of near and dear to my heart, obviously, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, which is both a great title for a show, and the show itself is pretty great, too. Uh, the last episode, I think, was Yongery, is that right? Uh, no, we recently, we did Yongri, then we did Godzilla vs. Megagirus, and then the last one was Space Amoeba, specifically right. the American version, which is Yogg Monster from Space. Oh, 
How are you, sir? I, I stepped Hi. on your introduction by getting a little excited about Yongri. <laughs> oh, Yongri, how you make me feel different ways. Yeah, it's uh, a weird I, movie. It's, it's, it's very strange, and its history is even stranger. Um, but I am doing great. I'm excited to be here. I've got my uh, DVD from Movie Gallery for Meatball Machine. Nice. And I'm I'm ready to do which by the way. So I I got to watch the special features and there is um the original short that Meatball Machine was based off is on there. Right. Which originally was not a short and was re-edited to be a short. Correct. Uh I would like to see the whole thing though I feel like it would probably have a lot of that kind of like Japanese cinema walking around. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, not to tip our hand too much, I, there is a bit of that in Meatball Machine, I think less so in Kotaku. Correct, uh, and it also has Reject or Death, which is a short done by the director of Meatball Machine, Kodaku, Kodoku. I'm, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and say this now, I'm terrible at pronouncing Japanese names, and my love for Japanese cinema is only hampered by this fact. Ah, well, um, so... Yoshihiro Nishimura is the writer, director, uh, special effects guy, and editor of uh, Kodoku, Kodoku uh, Meatball Machine. The original Meatball Machine, which is where we're going to begin our conversation tonight, uh, is directed by Yudai Yamaguchi and Junichi Yamamoto. Um, and it, Yamaguchi uh, was also one of the writers, as well as Junya Kato. Um, and so let's let's just start with Meatball Machine, which came out, uh, it, as we were kind of mentioning there, in 99, there was the original low budget, <laughs> as if the 2005 version is, you know, a triple A title. But the Meatball Machine was, was made in 99 by Yudai Yamaguchi, and then he joined forces all necroborg like with Junichi Yamamoto and they basically expanded Meatball Machine 99 into Meatball Machine 2005 which if you just watch if you go to you know Hulu or Amazon or wherever and watch Meatball Machine what you're watching is the 2005 version um which I, I haven't seen the full 99 version. I've only seen the the short, the 13 minutes that uh, was cobbled together from uh, from the original film. And I'm, but I'm kind of of the mind that hey, if you're going to watch one, the 05 version I think is probably the way to go. You know, um, I, I'm curious. I would like to see the 99 version in its entirety, but I don't know that it's essential viewing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would say I'm sh I feel like there would be a lot of fluff when I was watching the behind the scenes featurette for Meatball Machine. Um they talked about the original, but for some reason the DVD does not have Yamato speaking with everybody. He's like just not there. Yeah. So we never get his take on how he did the original. We only get um the uh Yamaguchi we only get his version of what happened with Meatball Machine and why he ended up 
taking over and directing um, when they needed reshoots and how that became more of a thing than just doing reshoots. Right. Yeah. It becomes uh, what you sort of see today as meatball machine. And so it's worth also mentioning that we're going to, we're going to talk about kind of a group of splatter directors here. Uh, Yudai uh, Yamaguchi is one of them who was also, if uh, let me make sure that I've got this right before I say something stupid, but he was also the writer on, yeah, one of the writers of Versus, the Ryuhei yes. Kitamura film, also did uh, Dead Ball, which is a movie I have a lot of time for. Um, <laughs> and um, Meatball Machine, of course, and another one called Battlefield Baseball. And those are all very splattery kinds of films. You know, he did some other stuff like Yakuza Weapon, and uh, he he did one of the ABCs of Death segments. But with uh, with these guys, there's uh, Yamaguchi. Then there is Yoshihiro Nishimura, who directs Meatball Machine uh, Kodoku. And then you have... Um, oh, jeez. What is... Hang on. Let me get the name of the other... Uh, Noboro... Yeah, Noboro Iguchi yeah. Are, are, are sort of the three pillars of... What is this movie again? Um... The, it was sort of Japanese splatter. I mean, other people did it. Obviously, uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man is, is sort of the proto Japanese splatter film. Uh, although I would argue that one is a bit more experimental in nature and a little less ridiculous. Um, but they're they're all kind of born from that film, which is this notion that you can kind of do anything in these movies, and in fact the crazier you get, the better the movie is. Or that seems to be the philosophy. I'm not saying that the movies are inherently great because of their ridiculousness, uh, although I would probably say they are inherently great because of their ridiculousness. But I'm saying that these guys sort of try to outdo each other. And, and with Aguchi and Nishimura in particular, they kind of trade jobs on films where Nishimura will direct and Aguchi will do the special effects and Aguchi will direct and Nishimura does the uh, special effects and vice versa. Um, although I, I'm sure that there's plenty of overlap in those roles. They're just crazy people that make crazy films. And, uh, and, and so that is my at least rough Reader's Digest version of, hey, if you want to get into Japanese splatter films, look up those three guys and just watch what they've done. And also understand that the Japanese splatter film is a bit different than most other splatter films. Like if you look at a movie like Dead Alive, which is held as one of the biggest and greatest splatter films understand that there is more body horror in the Japanese splatter film. And that's kind of what separates it while it does have the overflowing uh, blood everywhere, where every net cut turns into the elevator opening in the shining. They love body horror. And that's where Tetsuo the Iron Man is. There is a very big 
uh, inspiration or even going to the original manga for Akira and what it did for the mixture of human flesh and wiring and cables and this whole technological version of body horror. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think an important point is, and one of the reasons I, I tend to like these movies, there's something about body horror that I, I sort of innately respond to. And that's what these movies are. It's, it's, you know, to, to paraphrase Cronenberg, it's the desecration of the flesh. Um, and except done, like you said, every body has approximately 25 gallons of blood. Yes. And, and circuitry and wires. And it's, uh, Cronenberg's body horror is disgusting and it's made to feel, make you feel uncomfortable, but Japanese body horror doesn't really gross you out or make you feel uncomfortable. It makes you go, who thought of that? Yeah. And I think for me, one of the things about these movies I like most is a sense of uh, there, a, a couple of things. One is the sense of inventiveness of, of trying to do the craziest thing you can think of. Like, we'll we'll talk about it when we get into uh, Kotaku, but there's a guy who has a fist made out of fists and that is fantastic. And uh, that kind of thing I really, really enjoy. The other part of it, too, uh, along with the inventive nature of it, is this idea of uh, sort of this punk rock kind of chaos to the proceedings. That, much like Tetsuo the Iron Man, is in many ways related to the early 80s sort of Japanese punk films and experimental films of that time. So are movies like Meatball Machine and Tokyo Gore Police and that kind of thing that there, there is a sense of, of crossing lines of being a, a bit taboo with all of this stuff. And I think that's what I like there. There's a grindhouse element to it. That is, that's exuberant in nature. It's not, it's not sort of the maudlin grindhouse of something like the Hills have eyes where like, this is a movie that's just going to make you feel bad where like Meatball machine, uh, is a movie that is bonkers and it's bloody and crazy, but I don't think it's ever intended to leave the audience in a place of quiet introspection, you know? No, it's not because even when it walks the line of showing, society's darkest uh thoughts um it tends to quickly break that up with someone stopping it and it getting ridiculous or even when um if you go to the original if you go to meatball machine and you have uh yoji's character when he saves sachiko from you know being about to be raped by someone he works with who's a dick the entire god he's a dick um, you like it does that sequence does not turn absurd, but it does show a someone stepping in and saving someone from society's darkest elements. Yeah, and 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 so let's let's start right there with Meatball Machine. So Meatball Machine is the story of Yoji, uh, who is this factory worker who uh, works across the street. From this girl named uh, Sachko, 
And he discovers one day in a pile of trash this um, – it, it's almost like a – it's almost like Chobits. Yeah, like, like yeah, uh, it, it's like a, the the alien thing from the Puppet Masters, the Donald Sutherland one, kind of <laughs> thing. And except uh, it doesn't. What these things do, they're little alien pods that attach to you and turn you into what are called necroborgs, which means your body dies, but they run all these wires and tubes into you to keep you walking around. And there's a little uh, parasite pilot that runs your body and and forces you to keep moving and ultimately f- fight other necroborgs. And then, uh, so, Yoji has found one of these... As you pointed out, this girl that works across the street from him is assaulted by uh, his boss. And he saves Sachiko, takes her home, and it turns out like she's got, uh, you know, scars on her arms and that kind of thing. She is a, uh, a girl who has been abused before. And then the negative emotions that she is experiencing wakes up the uh you know the alien device and it attacks Sachko which turns her into this necroborg and there's a bit of tentacular rape here uh the the uh, there's a hentai flavor to this scene that you know if you ever were watching a hentai anime and thought i wonder what that would look like for real eh, you kind of get it here it's not as explicit as that but there is certainly it, it's very tame it yeah it's it's not as it does not even go as far as say the tree rape scene in evil dead yes and and that's what i i was reminded of watching it but yeah, you're right. It's not quite that explicit. But there's also, given the expression on her face and and the the moans, that there is certainly the implication that she is enjoying it to an extent. It's hard to tell because, like, the one thing that I have a problem with this movie is what little you get from the characters don't are not really enough to make you understand the characters. Cause you know, before this happens, she talks about her dad uh, abusing her and cutting her to make her unattractive and not desirable to men, which would make you think she would either, she either a is enjoying this tentacle because she is used to sex and pain at the same time and is accustomed to it. But at the same time, it would also make you think, Wait, she should not be enjoying this. This should be reminding her of her father a very negative and bad time in her life. And at that point, you have to go, oh, wait, I'm watching Meatball Machine. Right, right. There is, you know, you've watched enough Asian uh, and particularly Japanese horror films to know that the idea of a woman being raped is just a plot device. It is as common as... You know the the drunken detective in noir fiction is it's just part of it, and it's uncomfortable, and it, it's occasionally really uncomfortable and inappropriate, but it, it's just 
part of the thing. And the implication here is that Sachko's father w- abused her sexually. And the reason that he, he wanted her to be ugly was because he wanted her for himself. And so the idea that maybe the pain is part of the pleasure here, like this sounds way more high minded than meatball machine ultimately is. I think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they just wanted her to moan because the audience would like it. Right. That because of the titillation factor. And when we get into, you know, Kotaku, that is far more front and center. But in this case, this is really the only point where we see like this confluence of pleasure and pain that you would get in, you know, speaking of Cronenberg, more more of those kinds of films or or Hellraiser or something like that. But they, um, so anyway, we get not only is she transformed into this necroborg, we see the parasite pilot sort of take over here. Which is this little uh, fleshy, worm-looking thing? It looks like if the alien from Mac and Me was a fetus. Yeah, and had pinchers. Yeah, I assume that Ma- that the alien from Mac and Me had pinchers as a fetus. Fair I just enough. Think that probably happened. Yeah. Oh, that's a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it. And then to sort of take control, it settles on this phallic object so that it it becomes the pilot of the body at that point and fully fuses with uh, with the Necroborg itself. And then, uh, so Sachko ends up, you know, taking off as a Necroborg. And then the movie is essentially Yoji gets infected, but his infection is cut short so that he still maintains his sense of humanity somewhat. And even though he is, he is still this monstrous biomechanical creation. And, he gets infected because he is looking for um, Sachko runs across this doctor that uh, you were talking about in uh, was it reject or what what's the name of it? Uh, the short film. Oh, uh, the, well, the original short film, are you talking about reject or death? Reject or death. Yeah. Which is the, um, the expansion of this storyline where there's a doctor who's got, a daughter who has been infected, but he's removed everything, but sort of the, the Necroborg pilot. Yeah. The- Which I'll say, uh, none of that is explained in Rejector death at all. Um, it really is just them going, I really want to do more Necroborg shit because none of that is in re reject or death. Like it's her, it's that actress, so you can be like, oh, it's that actress. But they, they really don't show her father um, at all. It starts off with her cutting open her wrist and finding a switch that she then presses. And then it goes to a couple having sex and then the alien mechanism finding them, taking over them. And then it involves some really racist characters uh, to then battle 
uh, the girl who was having sex, who is now a necroborg, and then the girl from Meatball Machine showing up, and you kind of get the explanation of like it shows her has you know it attaches to her neck, and she her hand turns into a gigantic razor blade, and she defeats them, but then she gets shot in the eye by the racist racist old man Native American white guy who has a bow and arrow yeah there's there's some unfortunate stuff in both well in in that short film but also kotaku has a moment or two where you're like this is uncomfortable but yeah so the (laughs) we're explaining this probably better than the movie ever did but so the idea is that these parasites uh, who live in these little spheres are driven to, co- you know, convert human human people, human people, you know, <laughs> peoples like us. Well, you know, there's pod people, there's human people. You don't want to mess up and get the wrong type of people. Right. There's also those people, you know. Oh, I uh, hate those people. Oh, those people are the worst. But... But yes, trash people, yeah, trash people for sure, <laughs> garbage people. Um, but yeah, so the the uh, parasites are in this little silver sphere. They infect the human being, turns them into a necroborg, and then the necroborgs are forced to fight one another uh, for ultimately the the amusement of of other aliens. It, it's sort of gladiator games using humans as cattle to control and, and make fight. And the doctor uh, who has this infected daughter is growing these pods so that he can find people to infect uh, with this necrobore device so that the daughter can then eat the pilot which is what they do after you defeat an opponent necroborg, you you crack open the delicious silver shell and eat the the gooey center, which happens to be the parasite controlling the necroborg, and that's sort of the prize for for winning. And but also, you know, as you pointed out with the razor blade arms and whatnot, part of the necroborg gig is that you have these, you know, bio-weapons. Like, your arm just becomes a gun that shoots, you know, fleshy projectiles and and weird shit like that. Yeah. So, I had a question for you, because I like to uh, make every movie happen in the same universe as Phantasm. Sure, sure. Do you think that these spears could be similar to the same kind of spears that's used in Phantasm, and you can crack them open and eat Jody. I, yeah, I think hey, it's I mean, the same technology, have, for sure. Same, It's alien life form using this for their own... using us as cattle for their own purposes. Maybe, uh, I, I just think, maybe the tall man is controlled by one of these aliens. Man, you know, I had... Think about really- his... His fingers get cut off, and what do they turn into? A monster? Yeah, I see. Here's the here's the thing: is I hadn't really thought 
which is strange. I hadn't thought a bunch about Phantasm in relation to this movie, Silver Balls aside. But the more that I'm thinking about it, the more I'm thinking, not only is it set in the same universe, they're essentially sister films. Um, yeah. You know, where you get... Well, yeah, because Jody has the the silver ball in his head at one point where he has just become a fleshy host for the silver ball. What is his brain? Yeah. So I now have, I'm trying to create this universe where phantasm brain scan and meatball machine are the same universe. Um, brain scan might take slightly more effort. I usually have to drug people to convince them of that one. Yeah, that that one's a little tougher. Meatball Machine and Phantasm, a hundred percent. Again, you're using the same alien technology. It's putting putting some kind of sentient thing into a silver ball that then it you know can, can move change with drills and horns and yeah, all kind of weirdness. I'll I'll tell you one of the things that I think is the most rad about Meatball Machine, and make no mistake, I think Meatball Machine and Meatball Machine Kodoku are kind of rad. Um, the thing I love most about it is the, for one, it's just the Necroborg design that they're all a little bit different and they're all really bizarre and, and there's a lot of detail in them. Again, Nishimura worked on the makeup effects for this film, for the original Meatball Machine. And it's all a bunch of prosthetics, obviously, you know, it's a half step away from like a Power Rangers villain. Yeah, it's like if a Power Rangers villain was rated R. Yes, very much so. If instead of just, hey, here's a Power Rangers villain with lobster arms. What if they do a Super Sentai series that <laughs> Super Sentai Necroborg? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You see them grow really big and then fight some kind of gigantic combination robot? That would be awesome. I would love to see some, you know, large-breasted meatball machine necroborg <laughs> fighting Ultraman or something. Uh, oh. That would kind of make my day. But yeah, yeah, so the the uh, you know, we've got the the daughter and and the doctor who end up infecting Yoji and then Yoji, you know, ends up because it it the doctor's just experimenting and whatnot. This shit doesn't totally work. And, but Yoji is infected enough that he is now a Necroborg for all intents and purposes. He's just not piloted. He has his own, his his own thoughts and, and motivations. And what his motivation is, is he wants to go find Sachiko, which he does. And, Basically, the movie is Yoji infects Sachiko. Sachiko runs away. Yoji goes after her. He gets infected, then becomes a Necroborg himself. And then they meet in a junkyard or whatever and have a big fight, which is the thrust of the film. It's, it's you know, he is going to free Sachiko by killing the pilot that's running her. And then they they have this battle in uh in a remote area where you know the parts of their bodies are transforming into other weapons. There's a big 
gun that comes out of his chest and it's i mean it's all very silly it's 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 one of those things where i would recommend that the listener just watch the film or at least the last 20 minutes or so and it's like well this is what the movie is like it all leads to this there's a lot of other silliness along the way but at the end of the day this is a movie about two giant robot monsters fighting each other it it's not that different from a godzilla film really or any of the you know the kaiju it, films it's, it really is an ultraman episode where you you spend almost a third of the episode learning the background and seeing the destruction the monster caused and then the last you know 5 minutes of it are it is ultraman fighting back and winning that's what this movie is yeah yeah and and they have their big battle uh, Sachko is aware enough to, to want to be destroyed. She doesn't like being a Necroborg. And so that's kind of what they do. But then we have the PS of Meatball Machine, which is where we learn the why it's called Meatball Machine, and also the plot of the aliens, which is, hey, we're doing this just for goofs. You know, we just go to these primitive planets, infect the locals, have them fight each other, and and we just see what happens. And it's all it's all good fun. And but the problem we ran into these aliens say is that humanity, human beings, are too filled with emotion, and that they have such powerful internal motivations that they don't necessarily need to be piloted. They just need to be infected. So they have two new candidates. What are these two uh, bald folks uh, that they have in tubes? And they say, we're going to infect these two, and we're going to call that Project Meatball Machine. Or um, in the original Japanese, Mitoburu Machine, which is pretty awesome. And I don't know what Meatball Machine means. I don't know why they call it that. It's just, you know, you could call it or or like veal or organic veal industrial or something. Infectious Metal Meat Grinder Extreme 7. Yes, you could you could absolutely call it that. And it would sound just as reasonable as Meatball Machine, other than the fact that Meatball Machine is kind of a cool name for something. I feel like it's they wanted to do something, you know, we're, we're taking meat and mixing it with the machine. And, oh, yeah, there's a ball in it. So let's just add it all together. And that's the name. Yeah. Yeah. And it so had you seen Meatball Machine before you agreed to do this? <laughs> Yes, uh, okay. I, ha- I had seen Meatball Machine. I bought uh, a copy of it from Movie Gallery when they went out of business uh, because it it was called Meatball Machine, and the cover is a lady who has some kind of metal thing over her eyes, and she's bleeding. Why would I not buy this? And I and I'm glad I didn't. Now I will say today was the first time I watched the special features on it, which. So the uh, director who ended up taking over, um, Yamaguchi, have you heard about what the ending he wanted for this movie? 
No, 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 no. Or I, I'm sure I have at some point, but I don't recall it. So please. So he wanted, and he couldn't do it for budget restraints. Uh, but while they were filming the reshoots, which was basically redoing half the movie, uh, he he said, "I didn't want to just end with the aliens talking about it. I wanted to show it. I wanted to have a stadium of all of these aliens filling the seats." And having uh, the uh, Yoji and Sachiko clones, basically, I don't, I can't, I don't, I'm not sure if they're other humans. They just shaved, but they look just like Yoji and Sachiko, just bald and painted white. Right, which doesn't make a ton of sense because, you, uh, like Yoji and Sachiko had just exploded. Exactly. So I don't know if they kidnapped other people and for budget constraints, just use what we have, which could be, but he wanted them in full Necroborg form coming and running at each other inside the stadium and ending with a fight between them in the stadium while all the aliens watched. That sounds pretty rocking. Yeah, I was like, uh, yes, I'm actually, it's kind of a, Spoiler for the next one. I'm kind of sad that they didn't continue this storyline in the next one. Yeah, because Kotoku is more retelling. Yeah. So this movie deals with um, if there is a message to this movie. To me, it's somewhere along the lines of the what we will go through to see violence for our personal entertainment and how we will sacrifice others happiness and for our own personal happiness. And you see this with uh, Yoshi, uh, Yoji's boss trying to uh, rape Sachiko. Like he doesn't care what she wants. He's dragging her, you know, and you know what uh, Sachiko's dad did to her. It's her, it, it's based about we as a society at some point have always been okay with hurting others for our own entertainment. And this goes all the way back to Roman Colosseum days. And it's, it's another And I know me talking about this makes it seem like, come on, Sono didn't direct this. Get out of here, Jerry. But, right. it, but, but this is just how the Japanese do it as to where the next movie seems like it's taking aim at, the same idea, but instead a wider shot at commercialism, which you don't realize until the very, very end. Yeah, to to some extent, I, I right, we'll we'll definitely get to that. But I would agree. I think that this movie is in a roundabout way about the tendency of human violence to be directed at one another. For whatever reason, like like you see with uh, uh, what's his name, the boss's name Tanaka, uh, going after Sanchko, um, and but also the like the thing that is redemptive in in the movie is the notion of love. Not to again, let's not paint too too thematic a brush with this, uh, or with the this notion film. of doing right by those yes. around you. Maybe, may I don't know if it's love or not between them because it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing but it's definitely two people who are good people and who are both outcast of society 
Right. Yes, who they have found one another and left to their own devices had there not been an alien necroborg machine probably would have found some kind of happiness with each other. You know, they were they were each broken in a way that complemented the other. Yeah. Or as the kids say, Yoji would hit that nut. Okay. Absolutely. Would would have uh done it, I think is what the kids say as well. Uh, well yeah, done it, hit it, um, quit it, reverse it, flip it, other Missy Elliott lyrics. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it it was so Meatball Machine ends there with this notion of like, oh, we're going to do um, this. Potentially, there's going to be this, this sequel that has to do with these kind of human clones where we can uh, shave them down, put them in a freezer, bring them out and just infect them without pilots and let them kill each other. Because that is the nature of the human animal is to is to engage in this kind of violence. Um, they're passionate creatures, uh, we learn from Meeball Machine. And so a short dozen years later, there is a sequel. This time, uh, Yamaguchi and Yamamoto are nowhere to be found uh, for this film. It is instead uh, a Yoshihiro Nishimura effort. Um and Nishimura, worth pointing out, not only did the special effects for Meatball Machine, but has directed, oh, geez, let, let me find the highlights here. Uh, Tokyo Gore Police, a personal favorite of mine. Vampire Girl versus Frankenstein Girl. Mutant Girl Squad. Hell Driver. Hell Driver. Uh, Meatball Machine uh, Kodaku um, has done special effects for, geez, just about every splatter movie. Um, Dead Sushi, Zombie Ass Toilet of the Dead, of course. Um, You know, that old chestnut. I have not watched the uh, toilet movie yet. Um, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest with you. It's... It's one of those movies where um, the title is more titillating than the actual film. It, the The film is strangely charming in its I, own it's way. It's just the whole statology thing of it that I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. I, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, has also worked as the makeups guy for Sono. Has done like Love Exposure and, um, uh, geez, what was the other? Uh, Cold Fish was the other uh, thing he did effects for for uh, Sion Sono. Um, oh, he did. He also worked on um, Suicide Club and um, Strange Circus. And I want to say he also helped with Norco's Dinner Table. Yeah. Oh, my God. Strange Circus is a. <laughs> fucked up That's movie, movie. Uh, that yeah that is a movie that at some point we'll get to on this show i'm just not sure how to cover it yet uh well if there's i feel like that's a time where you bring in two guests just like guys i don't know we're gonna need help yeah you're probably right because that it, it, it's a great movie but it's yeah. also uh. just twisted i mean it is 
really, really something. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm also uh, Nishimura is doing the effects work for a movie called Extremity coming up, which is an Anthony De Blasi film starring Tiffany Shepes and Felissa Rose. I'm there. Yeah, that sounds uh, uh, that sounds crazy. I also want to give a shout out to the guy that helped write uh, Kodoku, uh, Sakichi Sato. Uh-huh. Uh, you've seen this man before. He he is uh, Charlie Brown and Kill Bill, if you are interested in that. But I'm more interested in the things he, he's helped write, like Itchy the Killer, Itchy the Killer Episode Zero. One of my personal favorites for wacky movies, Gozu. Sure, sure. Uh, that's a good time. He wrote and directed Tokyo Zombie. Mm-hmm. I mean, he and he's done some recent stuff, but I that I haven't seen like Nirvana Island, the last forty-seven days, which looks super interesting. Or uh, the Tokyo Slave series, which yes, our probably, Tokyo Slaves, yeah, which is probably filthy. Yeah, I don't know. He directed uh, the two thousand fourteen movie Tokyo Slaves, also. Yeah. So, but again, definitely in and around. Uh, some weird, weird shit. And anybody that <laughs> it serves as a screenwriter for Miike on more than one occasion where, where Miike is like, I like how this guy thinks, then you know you're riding in the high country with uh, our pal Sato. Um, yeah, it's like, it is really interesting, and I hesitate to use the word, but I think it fits here the incestuous nature of a lot of these films where it's just a handful of guys that are all kind of working together and, and just like, Hey, what are you working on right now? That sounds cool. What do you need me to do? Yeah. If you like created a Mount Rushmore of, of Japanese horror, a lot of these guys have been working on each other's stuff the entire time. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure what that Mount Rushmore would look like. I mean, Sono, Miike. Uh, who, um, then you have like Nishimura, Aguchi, and um, uh, oh, geez. I feel Yudai. like you, ha- you uh, have to put the guy who did Tetsuo with the Bullet Man because not only did he go on to do something much bigger, but like that movie is such an influence that he's kind of like one of the founding fathers of modern Japanese horror. Yeah. You almost have to do like, here's the Mount Rushmore of Japanese splatter. And then you shrink those heads into some mutant head and put that on, on the Mount Rushmore of Japanese horror. But yeah. And maybe I'm trying to think who else had a conversation for another time, probably, but uh, you know, Sono for sure, Miike for sure, um, and 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 I can't believe I am blanking on the director of Tetsuo. Uh, I am terrible at pronouncing the name, so I I, I will probably butcher it, this, but it's Shin Shinya Tsukamoto or something. Yeah, Tsukamoto. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean that is unquestionably one of the most influential uh, f- films of. Geez, I mean not not just Japanese cinema, but just horror cinema in general. I th- I think there are enough people that have seen, uh, you know, Tetsuo the Iron Man and and Tetsuo, um, uh, 
the Bullet Man, uh, the the follow up. I, I the only one I haven't seen is the third one. Uh, which is what's uh, the third? No, one? the the Bullet Man's the third one. Yeah, Body the Hammer is the second. Second one. Yeah, uh, but I do. I I love the directors. I also love him as an actor. Uh, Marabito is one of my favorite movies, and he's oh. just excellent. And then of course he's Gigi and Itchy the Killer. Yeah, uh, which is fantastic. But Marabito is one that I just absolutely love. And of course he was in Shin Godzilla, and anyone that's in Shin Godzilla is great in my book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shin Godzilla. Speaking of, um. <laughs> models not uh, not just models but uh i believe i want to say that nishimura was in on some of that as well yes he was he so, he did work on shin um but yeah and and shin godzilla is one of those movies that, that there is i th- there are things i love about shin godzilla and i all there are things i also find problematic but i will still watch it anytime it's, I think it's one of those where it outweighs it. It's it outweighs it. Not only that, it gave us a completely different perspective and one that I've always kind of wanted to see for a Godzilla movie, which is how does the the government actually handle it with all that red tape? Yeah, and the other thing that I thought was really interest, interesting about Shin Godzilla was that whereas the original Godzilla was very much like oh shit like we we started nuclear testing and uh here is the wrath of god for that heinous action there where shin godzilla is much more of a nationalist kind of film where it's yes. like hey we can't wait for the rest of the world to handle shit we need our own our own defense force we need our own military like we need japanese sovereignty to yeah, deal it, with this problem. It is 100% Japan uh, a statement of Japan going, "Okay, World War II was a long time ago. We should have we should have the right now to have a stronger military force to be able to protect ourselves." Yeah. It, it's a really interesting like if you're at all interested in Japanese politics, it's a fascinating movie just on that level, and it's also a pretty rad Godzilla movie here and there as well. Uh, the, the some of the Godzilla work, and some of the miniature work in it is just phenomenal. Um, it, it does a really good job of mixing sort of uh the, those composite shots in a way that can only be done post you know year two thousand in a way yes. that it, it looks really cool. And I'm I'm a bit disappointed that they've sort of hit the reboot button on the Godzilla franchise. Um, for Toho for now for now, but. but- I, w- I I can't get too mad because someone needs to get back to making my Evangelion uh, fourth rebuild movie. Um, I've been waiting on that for way too long. So, you know, he needs to go do that before he thinks about another uh, Shin Godzilla movie. There is, uh, speaking of, the A Evangelion. Oh, did it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen the trailer. Most of it's in Japanese, so I have no idea what they're saying. It, it uses... English clips from the from the past couple of movies, and then it goes into like a showing footage from the new Japanese movie in Japanese with no subtitles. So I have no idea what they're saying or, or what it's going to do. But it looks like we're we're going to see more a, a a battle this time. 
Yeah, I. <laughs> this is again off topic, but it's just fun. Um, the the recent watch that I did, or relatively recent watch that I did of, you know, uh, hey, this tickles the nostalgia bone for me was uh, a battleship Yamoto, and holy shit, did I enjoy that movie? It. it I don't think it's great, but. You know, objectively, I, I think that the, the movie has some problems. But as far as being like, you know, a tubby kid who loved the, uh, uh, at the time it was Star Blazers, that, that cartoon, and realizing like, oh my God, they're doing a live action and, and finally getting around to seeing it. I love that movie. Oh, you're talking about the live action movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I have not watched that yet. Oh, it's, it is exactly what you want it to be if you're a fan of of that story you know Ooh, yeah i want to i gotta see that then. i've been stuck i've been on a gundam kick lately and i went back and I, I finally watched uh all of gundam the origin which i highly recommend because it it's it's way more interesting than the original gundam 79 series and it's it, honestly it improves that series, giving us much more background on the story of Shar. Okay, yeah. See, I'm not as up on Gundam, uh, but it, it's one of the and eh, it's one of one of those gaps in my knowledge that at some point I'll get around to fixing. I've been uh, as far as like the anime side of of things go, I've been making my way through Shiki, which is fucking good. I'm I'm super picky about my anime. I uh I do I don't like a lot of the bright tropes in anime, so there's a lot that I don't watch and I tend to stick with the darker side of anime. Uh, but I haven't really dug into the newer stuff, especially um like the Umazaki and Gaio stuff that I really need to look into. Yeah, I Shiki is this very horror uh centric show about just a town that is fucking cursed. Uh it, like the kind of town that is just filled with nothing but Amityville houses. Just everything is fucked in this town and it's kind of wonderful. Um that, that sounds up my alley. Yeah, it's you know, it, we start off with the the haunted school and that kind of shit and like, oh, hey, this girl that you just met as your classmate, she's probably dead and a ghost. Uh, that kind of stuff. It's it's pretty good. I'm not all the way through Shiki yet, but it's I've enjoyed uh, what I've watched so far, and I am I'm down. I want more. Um, but yeah, so there was a space battleship uh, Yamato film in 2010. And I again, uh, if if you can get your hands on, it, I want to say it's on uh, Hulu. Um, by the way, if you're not down with it, there is a website called JustWatch.com, and uh, it will tell you what mo- what any movie you type in is or where it's streaming. Oh, it's, that's nice. It's pretty great. Uh, so bear with me. I'm just seeing, and I'll edit this out. Space Battleship Yamato is 
Uh, okay, it's not free anywhere, but you can get it on Amazon for four bucks. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, and I I would recommend if you know of that franchise and are like, hey, I wonder if that's any good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, the uh, th- there's a whole de- like if you uh, if you watch the original uh, cartoon. Um, there is uh, a whole bit with the captain and that, like, that was the first, uh, cartoon I watched as a kid where just characters fucking died and never came back. You know, like it was, it, it was serial in nature in that way, uh, as opposed to just episodic, like Transformers or GI Joe, where at the end of every episode, you reset the table so you can watch them in any old order you want to with, you know, battle cruiser Yamato, uh, or, or star blazers. It was like, no man, you got to watch this in order because you, first of all, the, the, you know, the later seasons take not only take place after the initial season, obviously, but have to do with an entire like side story of the first season and that kind of stuff. And, And that was the kind of thing that, you know, blew my stupid young mind when I was watching it as a kid and thinking like, how come other cartoons don't do this? And it's because that cartoon wasn't trying to sell me toys all the time. <laughs> you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't have Starscream die because then nobody would want to buy Starscream. But that's true. You know, the captain and Yamato could get old and just fucking die because you weren't trying to sell a captain action figure. Uh, you were just telling a story. Yeah, that's the great thing about Japanese uh, anime <laughs> um, ooh. is the the for the most part, a lot of it is made for both kids and adults. So it has actually interesting stories that doesn't have to play down to a dumb audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you found it. Welcome back to the G Spot. I'm Bo Ranstall. With me as always, Court Psyops. How are you doing, Bo? I'm doing great. I'll tell you who's not doing great. Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. From 1964, our battle royale this evening is directed by Ashiro Honda. Uh, he of original Gojira fame. Uh, he's he's a, a veteran. He is the referee that you want when you've got both uh, Godzilla, you got your Rodan, you got your Mothra, and you got your Ghidorah. Court, this is a, a real stack deck we're looking at on the card tonight. Yeah, it may be a step down for Rodan, who did debut on his own battling and causing all sorts of havoc, but he's in with some real heavyweights here, so this is not an undercard he should be ashamed to be a part of. Yep. Uh, by the way, Rodan, kind of a jerk. We'll get into it. Uh, so this movie starts off where we've got a lady getting a hard time for not believing in UFOs, Court. You know, broads don't like UFO mythology. That's uh, one thing that Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster would have you believe. That's how I've always found it, Bo. Anytime I start chalking UFOs, the bras go back on. Court, there are meteor showers happening all over the world. Along with that meteor comes a princess from Silgina. She's showing up in Japan when a bright light shows up at her window and tells her to jump out of the playing court. Now, this is an odd boo for any ball of light, much less a princess. Anytime a ball of light comes talking to me and telling me to jump out of a plane bow, I'm probably not going to do it. 
Well, you would have gotten blown the fuck up, Court, because that's what happens to her plane. Fortunately, she listens to that ball of light. And then we have some dudes checking out a valley where a big meteor fell. It is in no way some sort of monster embryo, Court. It looks an awful lot like a blob to me, Bo. It is blob-like. Unfortunately, what is hiding in there ain't no blob, Court. Ain't nothing getting pushed through the grates of an air conditioner in a model movie theater. You are absolutely correct, sir. There's something much more ominous than a slow-moving digestive juice. Well, Naoko, our lady who didn't believe in UFOs, is told to go cover a prophet who turns out to be our missing princess what jumped out of a plane. Only this time, she says she's from Venus. I suppose men are from Mars, eh, Court? That's how I've always understood it, Bo. That's how I've always understood it. She says something strange is going to happen on Mount Asso, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down there, Bo. What I'm putting down is Mount Asso, Court. I don't know if you've ever taken a visit to Mount Asso. I recommend the valley. I have explored some very cavernous areas of Mount Asso, Bo, and I found it rather pleasurable. Putting Mount Asso behind us for a second, Court. The Mothra twins show up on a game show, and we get a full-on Mothra song. It's a real Mothra Unplugged. What I'm confused about, Bo, is... I was seeing double in previous movies with Mothra, and now there's only one. Have my corrective lenses finally kicked in? I assume that one of the Mothra larvae ate the other. Well, considering that I'm pretty much convinced that Mothra is a stoner kaiju, probably got the munchies and ate its sibling. You're right, though. That sibling's gone AWOL, but Mothra is living it up, being sung to by some unfortunate blackface Japanese actors. Unfortunate just doesn't quite cover the amount of discomfort I felt watching it this time around, Bo. Yeah, it's a, it's a real sad state of affairs, Court. But fortunately, the Venusian, as we know, is the, uh, the princess, and she warns that volcanic gas from Mount Asso is going to wake up Rodan. That's one of the reasons why I stopped exploring the cavernous areas of said Mount Asso, Bo. Probably they need to lay off the seaweed, Court. That makes me a little gassy around Mount Asso. Well, the fiber's been increased. That's going to happen. Sure enough, Rodan wakes up and starts acting like a jerk. Well, in defense of Rodan, he's a bit cranky from being woken up from his ancient slumber. I know I get the same way, Bo. Not a morning person, neither is this kaiju. The Mothra twins are about to hop on a boat, and our Venusian princess shows up to tell them to stay off. It's going to pull a Titanic. I don't know. If we lose these two twins, it might be a little lost. I think my heart would break twice, Court. A little bit for both of them. It would be one large break for two tiny little ladies. Ah, well said, Court. Well said. Well, the Venusian prophet was entirely correct, because Godzilla shows up in the middle of the ocean to burn the ship up. Well, once again, waking up a kaiju in mid-ancient slumber, never a good idea, particularly when they've got atomic breath. Probably got that atomic breath from being in Mount Asso too long. I'm not sure I like this filthy implication about what Godzilla may or may not be doing to mouthing Mount Asso. Some thugs show up to grill the prophet princess, and then the Mothra twins show up to save the day. Miniature heroes, both of them. Does it seem to you like they've grown from their last appearance? They don't seem like they're going to fit into a tiny suitcase anymore. They're like pint-sized people. I like the fact that they have their own special case, Court. 
it's something that you got to get custom made. It's not like you can sh- stop by the old Target and get yourself a mini Japanese lady carry case. Lord knows I've tried, Bo. Lord knows I've tried. You have to find those on the dark web, Cord. The dark web. The thing I don't like about the twins that's always bothered me, Bo, is why do they get carried around by other people that are larger than them? I've tried this my entire life, and everyone refuses. Going piggyback with strangers, a good way to get a misdemeanor charge, Court. As my lawyer has advised me to say, Bo, I have no idea with what you are referring. So Godzilla rolls into Japan with Rodan uh, pecking at his head. There's no real fight here. They're just sizing each other up, Court. There's a whole lot of posturing, beating of chess, and a whole lot of bravado going back and forth, Bo. Well, while these two are squaring off, our heroes take the princess slash Venusian prophet to Sukamoto Labs, which is a division of Honeydew Labs, I do believe. I think you might be correct, and whenever you're trapped in a world of large monsters, it's always best to go to a mad scientist to figure out what the hell to do. Finally, we get Rodan doing a flyby here, and it takes a while, Court, but eventually, the star of our film, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, worth noting Godzilla doesn't even rank the title on this one. Yeah, three heads are better than one, Bo. Three heads are better than one. That's true, but when you have Mothra, Rodan, and Godzilla, sounds like three heads v. three heads to me, Court. It does take three bodies, though, to one, so still going to say three heads better than one on bo- one body. If you want to be confrontational like that, Court, I'll have to allow it. Well, well, that's what they hired me for, confrontational commentary. It's in my business card. Finally, King Ghidorah wakes up. And let's be honest here, King Ghidorah is one of the coolest looking kaiju you're going to run across. He has a bit of an air of the Hydra to him, only with more cool wings. He's golden, he's scaly, kind of a god or an otherworldly being that you just can't take your eyes off, Bo. Well, knowing that King Ghidorah here has destroyed the Venusian homeworld thousands of years ago, and in some sort of, one might say... Scientology-esque move, these Thetans, if you will, have attached themselves to the princess what jumped out of the plane, Cord. Now she's telling everyone Ghidorah is going to destroy Earth as well, and they have only one hope, and that is a Kaiju v. Kaiju free-for-all. Grab your E-meters and call up Tom Cruise, folks. Shit's about to get real. Our twins decide that the only... (laughs) The only way that they're going to solve this problem is to call in Mothra to mediate. Sort of a kaiju Dr. Phil. Well, Mothra seems to be quite the lazy kaiju even in this film and is loath to want to move. You gotta worship, you gotta lavish, you gotta throw a bunch of love its way before it's going to get off its tiny wormy butt and get moving. I've said it before, Court, I'll say it again. Mothra is the kaiju I relate to most for that very reason. Well, considering my own anger issues, Godzilla's still my boy. Rodan, by the way, is still being an annoying jerk. Basically, flying over Godzilla and pecking him in the head like an annoying seagull bent on destruction. I believe the term Rodan is loosely translated to bird named Chad, Bo. 
At this uh, at this point, it's up to Mothra to try to mediate between Rodan and Godzilla to convince them to fight King Ghidorah. Fortunately, we have our little Japanese girl twins to translate for us. The conversation essentially goes, Hey, how about you two stop fighting each other and fight King Ghidorah? To which Rodan replies, How about you go fuck yourself, Mothra? It's at this point, Bo, that I start to associate myself more strongly with Rodan, and I'm enjoying his presence. That bad boy attitude just resonates with me, sir. I'll tell you what, if it weren't for the wings, he'd have one hell of a leather jacket, Court. No doubt about that. Unfortunately, Godzilla is also of the mind he'd rather slap fight with Rodan than get into a real scrap with King Ghidorah as well. Again, why I associate so well with Godzilla, he holds a grudge like a mountain stands up to a rainstorm bow. I know he's Japanese, but he seems Irish to me, Court. Finally, the two give in thanks to Mothra's constant yammering. Leave it to a lady, am I right, Court? I cannot comment on that on the grounds that I am a married man, Bo, and my wife will never let me live it down, but you may have something there. It's a good point. I should edit it out, but probably won't. Meanwhile, back in a movie we don't care about as much, an assassin is trying to kill one of our heroes and the Princess Prophet. All of these people are horrible, horrible shots, Court. It's almost like they went to the Stormtrooper Shooting Academy, Bo. They can't hit anything at all. Fortunately, a rock slide does the job nobody else could do and covers the assassin in a bunch of boulders. Thanks to our boys fighting up above with King Ghidra, the rock slide saves the day, proving once again, through his negligence, Godzilla is a better protector than the human race of itself. I do admire the fact that both Rodan and Godzilla point out the fact that human beings suck, and that's why they don't really want to defend them. Every time they show up, Bo, all we've ever done is shit on them. What point do they have in trying to save us? Yeah, Mother's really uh, a, a bit of a goody two-shoes. Sort of an Uncle Mothra, if you will. This is where I'm coming back to the idea that Mothra's a stoner kaiju, Bo. She's smoking up on her spare time, and that makes her grateful she's not dead. Hey, man, we should save the planet or whatever. Maybe if we just hug everybody, it'll be okay, and we won't have to fight. We just give giant kaiju-sized hugs, man. Not for me, Bo. Not for me. Starting to realize that Mothra is the Janet from the Muppet Show in the kaiju universe. That seems to be the case, Bo. That seems to be the case. Well, up above, uh, leaving our, our thug what got covered by boulders out of it for a minute... Mothra, Rodan, and Godzilla finally square off against Ghidorah, mostly after Ghidorah takes a couple of minutes to kick the ever-living shit out of Mothra. Not gonna lie, Bo, kind of enjoyed watching that happen. It was brutal, it was savage, it was hilarious. Not that I condone hippies being beaten up by three-headed dragons, but when I can watch it, I'm gonna. Truer words, Court, truer words. So, uh, feeling a little bit guilty about their pal Mothra getting the shit kicked out of her, Rodan and Godzilla join the fight, and this is when things get exciting. Ghidorah, who fires electric bolts out of his three heads, is lighting up the countryside as well as taking a couple of shots at Godzilla. 
when you've got three heads, you have three options to shoot. Two in one, one in the other direction. And he's using it to his full advantage, Bo. Peter is definitely rocking her with the shocker. Two heads in the pink, one in the stink, sir. Right in Mount Asso, you're correct. Well, Godzilla and Rodan do some damage. There's uh, some silk being spun by Mothra, who never really emerges from the larval stage in this film. But Rodan pecks at Ghidorah. Mothra piggybacks on top of Rodan to throw some spittle silk uh, directly into Ghidorah's eyes. Godzilla is throwing rocks like he's a baseball player. It's quite a battle. It seems odd to me that in the way that they could actually team up, Rodan didn't use his method of picking Godzilla up by the spines earlier when he was battling him to form an ultimate weapon of an atomic breath gun in midair. Why didn't they do this, Bo? Doesn't make any sense. Honestly, I think unless Rodan is dropping Godzilla from a height, he has no interest in carrying the big G around. So what you're saying is that Rodan couldn't handle the weight of Godzilla, Bo? I'm saying Rodan didn't have the opportunity to be a jerk to Godzilla in that scenario, and thus avoided it. Once again, bird named Chad, sir. Bird named Chad. Well, at the end of this court, our heroic kaiju of Mothra, Rodan, and Godzilla basically harass King Ghidorah into leaving the planet. There's no real winner here. Just a kaiju that got sick and tired of three other kaiju giving him the business. He takes his toys and runs home like a spoiled brat, Bo. Not what you would expect from a three-headed monster. Although exactly what I expect from a royalty. You're not wrong, sir. He's not a king for a bad reason. So, Court, let's uh, let's put this in perspective here. First of all, Godzilla, as I pointed out, not in the title. But we do have one, two, three, count them, four different kaiju squaring off in this film and yet i found surprisingly little monster action compared to some later entries well as we all know godzilla had been on a real losing streak lately and it wasn't until this film hit that he really had a turnaround and became our anti-hero it's not so much that he wants to save or protect humanity it's just that he hates other kaijus way more than he does us so if they're screwing up stuff he can't screw up stuff and they're in his way that's why he's here that's why it's happening and you know the emergence of king Ghidorah is actually what brings everybody else out and he takes forever coming from that gelatinous blob like shape therefore you got a lot of time that you got to fill with all of the people it has nothing to do with the fact that the budgets are starting to dwindle on these films Bo, and they're trying to throw in more monsters the sort of james bond style venusian prophet side story is fairly dull and doesn't really go anywhere. Unfortunately, uh, we've got a little bit more of this to look forward to over time. Yet our next uh, film also does not include the word Godzilla in the title. Um, uh, Our next time around is going to feature the the return of King Ghidorah, this time in a film uh, entitled Invasion of Astro Monster. I do believe that this is where he's known as Monster Zero as well in some versions of this particular battle, because all things have a number here. The Monsters is Zero. Well, you call him what you like, Court. He's always going to be King Ghidorah to me. But uh, we're going to get a little more Godzilla. We got a little more Rodan coming up. I look forward to uh, a bit more action. Also, if memory serves, Court, Godzilla gets a little feisty. 
in uh, in the next time around. He likes the idea of being an anti-hero here, sir. So he's going to run with it. And when he can whoop ass for a good cause, he feels better about himself. And this is where we start seeing Godzilla with the assist of his fellow kaiju marking up win after win, Bo. It's about time. Godzilla's been the punching bag of the kaiju world long enough. It's nice to see him get uh, some points on the board here and Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, and I look forward to seeing it continue. Uh, Court, any final thoughts on this particular matchup? I gotta say, a King Ghidorah by any other name will smell as sweet and also blast you with pea-colored lightning, sir. King Ghidorah is no slouch, no question about that. Should have been a better movie surrounding him, but I look forward to uh, the return and invasion of Astro Monster along with you, Court. Thanks for being here in the G-Spot once more. I'm glad you renewed my contract, Bo. That's all I have to say about that, and you're welcome, sir. We'll see everyone else at Mount Asso. Avoid the caverns, folks. That's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Part two of the Meatball Machine saga, which is, of course, Meatball Machine uh, Kotaku, which translate. There, there are two translations of this that I, I think fit. One is a, a, a very potent type of poisonous magic. The other is isolation or desolation. And I think both or either of those uh, could could fit this film. And so Meatball Machine Kotaku is, uh, again, the brainchild of Yoshihiro Nishimura with uh, Sakichi Sato also um, credited on the, on the script, although one wonders if how much of that he actually got in there because Nishimura is a maniac. And this movie feels like him front to back. Um, it is bloody. It is bizarre. It is, um, you know, taboo at times. It, 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 it participates in some really bizarre uh, kind of dark comedy. And so this is one you hadn't seen up, up until now, right? Correct. I had not seen this one. I wanted to. I didn't realize that it was on Amazon Prime or I would have watched it. Yeah, it's the fact that just random public can watch this movie seems wrong in a way. This feels like a movie you should have to special order from somewhere. But no, you can just go to Amazon Prime and there is Meatball Machine Kotaku waiting for you. And... So this is not a direct sequel in that it's not picking up from the uh, the bit um, at the end of Meatball Machine where it's like, hey, we got our, our frozen human sickles that we're going to now have battle each other. Instead, um, we get some upfront imagery of like a frog and a scorpion, which of course is uh, reminiscent of... Uh, um, it is uh, analogous to the the notion 
of the story of the the frog and the scorpion where you know a frog is carrying a scorpion across the water and the scorpion stings it the frog is like hey why'd you do that i helped you across the water and the, the scorpion's like what the fuck are you talking about i'm a scorpion that's what scorpions do i just went scorpion on you but there's also a lot of millipedes and worms and fish and just basically anything that looks kind of gross because that's Nishimura's jam. And then we see a space jar hurtling towards the earth where we also find uh, Ihashina, the um, female lead of audition, all dressed up as a stripe lady who is wearing uh, an outfit that's got a stripe on it. And she's got one of, like, it is a device I always associate with doing the lines on a football field, but it's one of those things where it's dropping a line of chalk behind her as she's strolling around the city. Yeah, I was so confused at the beginning of this movie. Um, I was like, what What does putting all these creatures inside of a thing do? And then I was like, are this... And then there's a floating bottle in space, and then there's a chicken green just painting sidewalk chalk everywhere and i was like is the sidewalk chalk made out of the frog and scorpion or does that have nothing to do with anything why is there a glass in space well all these answers and more uh or all these questions and more will be answered except for the one about the frog um that's more metaphorical i suppose that's <laughs> nishimura being an auteur you know but i mean i just can't i like i'm trying to figure out what part that played in the movie besides the fact that he just wanted to do it. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I think you, you hit on exactly what the point of that is, uh, which is, Hey, this is um, Nishimura saying like, this is the animal nature of people to, to sort of fight with one another. It, it's a, a bit of a carryover from the first film, certainly. And as we get into, Oh, I, okay. I won't say it now. I'll say it at the ending. Now I just got the connection. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So then we, we land on our central character who is Yuji and Yuji is a 50 year old debt collector who is kind of a schlub, you know, like he goes around to collect his debts and, um, Nobody gives him money, so to pay his boss, who, you know, every day has to turn in some money to be that he was supposed to get from uh, these deadbeats that are not paying, um, he goes to an ATM and pulls out money against his own credit card to pay his boss rather than collect the money from uh, his clients. And the only light in his life a.k.a. the creepy obsession he has, is that he goes to a bookstore with uh, a guy named uh, Haje. Is it Haje or Hase? One of the two. And uh, that guy has a pretty lady who works at the bookstore, and the lady uh, seems to like Yuji, even though he is probably minimum 20 years older. I would think. Yeah, at least. And so Yuji's making a little bit of time with her. And then he 
uh, sees after he leaves the shop, he buys like this comedy tape. He goes and uh, hangs out uh, on a swing set and gets a call from his mother who wants some more money. And he says, well, I can't, I, I, I'm kind of out of money. I can't give you any. I gave you some recently. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah all that money's gone. And in the background, we see the girl with the white stripe again and not Jack Black. And uh, uh, is it Megan uh, White? But um, <laughs> not them. It is Megan White. Just a uh, good old fashioned stripe girl. And she pauses, looks over at him. And it's just like, hey, uh, here's something weird happening. And so the guy's been, Yuji uh, has been having stomach pains. And he goes to a doctor who seems pretty shoddy because the doctor is like, eh, it's probably cancer. I mean, we haven't done a lot of tests, but I'm going to tell you right now, you've probably got about three months to live. And, uh, you know, we can do some radiation. And at no point is he like, um, are you sure that it's cancer? Because the way you said that. Made it sound it, like it was probably cancer. It's it's a pretty shoddy doctor, but it make it. I think it works with the character of this guy. Literally has no backbone, can't stand up to anyone. So if he's just told it's cancer, he's just going to accept that he's going to die, and this doctor's not going to have to do anything for him. Right, and Joe versus the volcano style. This has given Yuji a new lease on life. So when he goes to collect debts the next day, he's got a little bit more uh, pep in his step. And he's starts, got the pizzazz. Right, right. He's got moxie now. And he does see the Stripe Girl again who hums at him for a while. And uh, again, just good old-fashioned Nishimura weirdness. And then he... Um, <laughs> We see after the debt collecting, there's this crazy montage where we see the Stripe Girl literally walking around the Earth because she is now what twice as big as the Earth with her her uh, you know sidewalk chalk machine, and there the jar is closing in on the Earth, and also Yuji dances along with some bobbing, like, kids' rides. And it's just this montage of images that are the reason I love Nishimura films. Because it's like, I'm sure there's a reason for all this. I can't exactly pick all of that out. I just think it's wonderful. Because none of this I, uh, you will see in a standard American film. Correct. It uh, Literally, I, for five minutes in the film, I just thought I had like had a drug flashback or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this great kind of, and that's why I, I, I say that there's this sort of punk rock element to these films. It's just like, you know what? We're going to do this crazy ass montage in the middle of it for no good reason. Not even the middle of it. This is like the first within the first half hour. Um, and then we see that our book girl is getting assaulted by a stalker who uh, is into his car. And, and I got to bring it up once again. <clears throat> well, I, I really want to know if the high occurrence of abuse that you see in Japanese movies and not just a guy abusing a woman, because we'll see further on, you'll see 
you know, this guy getting abused also as he uh, goes to some kind of cabaret, our main character. Right. Uh, like, you see it constantly, and I, I, I have to wonder, what is it about J- Japanese society that they have to constantly bring up this abuse of one another? And it always seems to be uh, someone of high power Take someone of authority taking advantage of someone below them or weaker willed or the opposite sex. You know, it, it's just constantly happening in these Japanese movies. And I'm and I just and I'm not Japanese. I've never been to Japan. I've never lived in Japan. I don't know what it's like over there. But it really got me thinking that I'm like, you know, for a country with no guns, people seem to abuse each other a lot. Well, I'll give you my pet theory, and and I've thought about this a lot and, and tried to research this as best I can, and I think it goes back to the fact that Japanese porn in particular, well, a couple of things. One, one is that Japanese porn was never allowed to show penetration or insertion, and, and that's why a lot of Japanese porn tends to be, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm yeah. going to tie this woman up and beat the shit out of her. Yeah, it goes back to a lot of those pink films. Right. So there's an element of that, and then there's also the American influence, because let's not forget that most grindhouse American films, especially those revenge films, that's how all of them start. Agreed. You know, it's either the girl got raped and she's taking revenge on the guys, or a girl got raped and murdered and the husband, boyfriend, father whatever is taking revenge on the people who did it to the girl. So it's not uniquely Japanese. It's just even more rampant than it is in America. It's more rampant and it just seems to happen multiple times in almost every, in, in, in a lot of Japanese films you watch. Some of them you sit there and go, was that even really needed? Couldn't they've done that a different way? And then sometimes it is completely needed, but I don't, and for in a lot of times, it's usually rather tame. It's small, tame occurrences that make me feel even weirder about it. Because at least when a film goes all out with it, I can be like, okay, they're trying to disgust you. But in Japanese film, it almost seems like they play it as, oh, that's just an everyday occurrence that just happens here. It's not a big deal. You just keep going. Just you know, you get groped on trains. It happens. Right. It's okay. Like it's almost like a normalization of it. That's always and to me, like seeing that and making me feel like I'm just going, oh, that's a normal thing, makes me feel sicker than when I watch, you know, the rape scene in Last House on the Left or the rape scene in Boys Don't Cry. It's that like it may like i'm supposed to be disgusted at that but when i'm watching it in the a lot of these japanese movie movies i just go oh yeah that's just you know every day right that's sometimes sometimes you're just gonna get raped you know i think japanese people have a weird thing with i think earlier in their culture they were very kinky and then and super into uh all kind of weird shit and then when they got the ability to start putting that into a media form, the government was like, whoa, whoa, other people are going to see this. Calm down, guys. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It, there, There is something uniquely uh, Japanese about the use of, of rape in film. 
And like a movie like um, Evil Dead Trap, there is just a detour in that movie of like, hey, you know what we haven't had in this movie yet? Rape. We ought to slip some of that in. Yeah, or going into any of the guinea pig movies. Yeah, any of that stuff. It's it's just crazy. And, you know, I mean, you deal with the the cultural difference there of, well, let's be honest, in especially uh, Japan of the 80s and 90s was not a terribly liberal place when it comes to treatment of women and things like that. I mean, the, the country has come a long way, but you know, when you're, you're culturally steeped in a history that includes, you know, geisha and that sort of thing. Like the the idea is that women are there to be submissive and docile. And that's, that's why you have salary men comedies and, and not the other way around. Yes, exactly, exactly. It, it It's a really interesting cultural difference, and it's one of those things that if you're watching Asian horror, uh, and Japanese cinema in particular, you just kind of have to get cool with it at a certain point and yeah. understand that, like, like, hey, just because I enjoy this movie doesn't mean I enjoy the way that the women are treated in this movie. The, the example I always use is in uh, the movie Pulse, which isn't even uh, about the rape scene. It's just the role of women in the film. Like at at the end of Pulse, when our our heroine pulls the male protagonist out of the ghost room, and he's all fucked up because he's seen the ghost and whatnot. Even in that scenario where she is completely unaffected, and he's the one that is barely able to walk. He takes her keys and drives her car, and it, it's one yeah, of it's, it's it's one of those moments of like, why? Oh yeah, because she's a woman. Yeah, you Pulse is the movie that I'm still very much on the fence about. I think it's a great movie. I just I, it's just very. I Japanese. think it's great. I just think the the choice to literally explain absolutely nothing to you, and like just bothers me so much that I'm kind of like, all right, as a filmmaker, you're, you, you have to give me something. I should not have to read a 20 page essay. Some guy wrote on his blog because he lived in Japan for two weeks, explaining to me the culture um, points the movie is trying to make. Like, cause like, I feel like suicide club does not explain a lot of things to you. But it gives you enough that you can start putting the pieces together after three or four watches, if you're lucky. I've seen Pulse four times now, and like, I still have a hard time making the connections that I've read people that I've read online that people have said. Yeah, and but it's also a much more sort of impressionistic film, I think. And I, I don't know that you necessarily need a full understanding of the movie. Like all you, at the end of the day, all you really need to know is, Hey, this is about technology being a potential harbinger of evil. And this is the expression of that. And I just think some of the imagery, like, like the, the scene in the, um, in the arcade of seeing that kind of shimmering figure walking amongst the, the, you know, pachinko machines and stuff like that is. And I, I love what I've deemed as internet horror. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that I even like movies like fear.com because I love the idea of the internet being infected with ghost and right. anything like that, or, or some kind of, I just what after I watched, uh, Kodoku on, uh, Amazon prime, I went, I was like, Oh, well there, what are other people watching that watch this? And I found a movie called death tube and death tube two that was done in Japan. And I plan on watching those this week because apparently it's about some game people are playing online that causes them to go in the real world and kill people. And I was like, oh, so it's the Internet effect. I'm there. Count me in. That sounds great. It's probably going to be terrible, but I'm going to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's a conversation I have a bunch uh, about why I like watching you know, Japanese and Thai and Korean films and Filipino films and stuff like because that. Because when Americans do the exact same idea, it's boring and loses that uniqueness. Because at least when you watch a movie like Pulse, there's an art to it. There's this this subtle cultural way of making the movie. So even if you don't understand it, even if you don't like it, you still go, I've got to think about this. Yeah. Like I, I point to a movie like Sonos Tag and say, you show me a horror film in the past decade that is as interesting and self-reflexive as yes. Tag is from an American director. And I, there are plenty of American horror movies I love. You know, I think Mike Flanagan is one of those guys who's just operating at the top of his game. I think 1922 is amazing. You know, I think there are a lot of great films, but I don't know that I felt challenged by them. I mean, a handful, like you got your, uh, the Vaviches and stuff like that, but it's only a handful of, of, of those movies like, you know, the Babadook or it follows or something like that. Yeah. That are doing something in a more interesting take. And, right. and, and Sono is amazing because not only did he in tag, did he literally reuse the scene he's known for from Suicide Club and get away with it completely. But uh, I, and, and I know Sono, I know you're listening. I know you're a big fan mm-hmm. of Here, Here, Go Show. Uh, we really need the third movie in the Suicide Club trilogy. Okay. I've watched the two movies. I've read the manga. I still have questions. Make the third movie already, damn it. Yeah. I, although I think um, uh, Tokyo Vampire Hotel is wonderfully Sono, uh, also available on Amazon now, where the first half of it is like, oh, this feels like a, a you know a semi-traditional vampire story. And then the, the last half goes fucking bonkers. Oh, uh, I gotta watch it. It's really good. It's really good. And it's it's one of those things, there's a bit of a slow burn to the front end of it. And by the time you're on the last episode, it, it's a real, much like, you know, Suicide Circle, where you're like, how did I get here from here? You know, the end of this movie doesn't feel like it should be the end of the movie I started watching. Yeah. And Have you ever read the manga? The I have Suicide not. Club? No. I, I read it recently because... um. I was I was on ABCs of Hidden Horror for S, and I brought Suicide Club, and I was like, you know what? I've never read the manga. I want to read the manga and see if it if it explains anything because I, I I was really trying to figure out Suicide Club at this point. So when I showed up, I could answer their questions because I knew they would have questions. 
And it's very interesting. The guy who did the manga was told by Sono, oh, I don't care if you do anything like the movie. Here's the basic premise. Do something. And right. so the manga is a prequel to the movie, but it involves like fucking uh, like a supernatural thing. And like dessert is not a a group. It is one lady who tells kids it's okay to self-harm and shit. And it's this weird like transferring of of uh, a soul to other characters. It's very it's very weird, uh, and I highly recommend it. All right, I'll uh, I'll, I'll definitely put it, it on is, the list. I, it I think- is online. I can send you a link of where I read it. Yeah, but please do. I I think that um, Suicide. Circle or club, you know, depending on which copy of it you have in your hand, um, is oh, what, I've got meatball machine in my hand. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you can go blind that way. Um, but that movie is the one that I always say: if you're not going to understand this movie, but you'll never forget it. Yeah, I'll tell you what though: when the episode for ABCs of Hidden Horror for S comes out. Listen to it and let me know what you think of my theory. I won't go into it here because we're, we're trying to talk about Kodaku, but listen to it and let me know what you think of my theory. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely will. Uh, that is like we've done that movie on this show here and, and did our love one of my does. favorite episodes because we try to say like here is basically what the ending of the movie is, and. I mean, but it's, it's, there's a bit of a shrug to it as well of like, maybe, I mean, this is not hard and fast. This is, this is a movie that sort of defies, you know, easy explanation. And that's kind of Sono's bag. It's one of the reasons I love tag. I know we'll, we'll get back to Meeple Machine here in a second, but Sono's tag, the thing I love about it is there is a good portion of that film film that feels like it's being incredibly exploitative. And then by the end of that movie, you realize that that is the point of the movie is to go from this exploitative sort of traditional like Japanese schoolgirl leering gaze kind of film into something that is strangely feminist. Yeah, it is also one of the most easiest to understand Sono movies. Right, right. It is as far as Sono goes, it is, uh, you know, the coloring book. Sono film of like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I understand what this movie is about. And I, I defy you to what well, I'll tell you, the other one I think would be um Love Exposure is not too difficult. Uh it that and also I mean it takes forever, but that's not a bad thing. You know, if you're if you're gonna watch four hours of a movie have yeah. Sion Sono direct it, and and you're going to be in pretty good hands. Yeah, and and in general, if you plan on watching a Asian horror thriller style movie, there's two things you should expect. There is a good chance you will not understand it your first time, and it's going to be long. They don't really care for doing short movies, especially Korea. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They would, they definitely want to get your your money's worth in uh, in Korea, but um, yeah, Love Exposure is four hours. Holy, sh- I haven't seen it, and but- it's it's not really a Ooh. horror film at all. It's just Sono 
it, it's fascinating because it is basically about a ninja upskirt photographer and a, a sort of a cult leader and the girl between them. And you realize that the innocent in the film is the upskirt photographer. And the, the cult leader is the corrupt one. It, it's, oh, it's so good. It, it It's it's just Sion Sono pouring his brain into four hours of film. And yeah. it's just nuts. It's so good. I'll have... I'll, I've got uh, the Blu-ray of it, and and at some I, point, I want to I want to I, I watch that. I want I really want to see his movie uh, anti-porno. Yeah, because I, uh, I have a, a love-hate relationship with the history of Japanese uh, underground cinema, especially when you get in, going from pink to the Roman pornos. Um. So, and, and with some of the Roman ones, I can't even watch them because that's when they really started getting into like the enema stuff mm-hmm. and the abuse of women. And uh, I can't remember the actress's name, but there's one that's like she was like the top of the Roman series. But like hearing her talk about it and how she like she would sit there and talk about how she would do things while getting an enema from the acting standpoint that you're just like. She was dead serious that this was an art form to her. And that's why it's so interesting to me. While I don't get the, I, I'm not into enemas or the beating of women or anything like that, uh, even in a fake way for uh, sexual gratification, the art form of it itself is amazing to me. So I have this weird love hate relationship with it. And when I read the description of anti porno, I was just like, how in the world would you even bring back the the Roman pornos in this day and age? As oh, a right. as because they had an art to them to bring that back in this day and age and do that more darker side as an art form is just interesting to me. So I, I really want to see it. Yeah, I, I mean, Sono is a, at heart a poet and. I think his movies follow suit. Like he always has something to say and his movies are about finding the most interesting way to say it. And, and now we will shut up about Sion Sono. Just watch everything the guy ever directed and you're, you're fine. Um, so where were, Oh yeah. Okay. So back to meatball machine, there is, uh, we, we, he find uh, our, you know, rejuvenated Yuji now that he's, um, knows he's going to die. Um, he he saves uh, the book girl from the car guy uh, trying to cop a feel. And then um, he d- realizes that he is now looking for her. Uh, uh, Ke- Keori? No, that's not the right name. What is don't it? ask me. I my problem if I don't watch a Japanese movie twice or they don't have it properly listed online on IMDb or Wikipedia, I cannot keep up with names, and so I just start nicknaming people. Sure, uh, Kaoru Kaoru is her name. Um, but anyway, so it turns out that he's looking for her because she also is on his deadbeat list, and. She ends up paying, like taking him back to her place, and she pays him. 
uh, while he's like looking at her ass and getting a peek inside her shirt and whatnot. And then she takes him to what she refers to as an empowering place. And when he gets there, she's like, you should join this. And it's only, uh, I think it's like 10,000 yen or a thousand yen to join. I think it was a thousand yen. Yeah. Something relatively cheap. A thousand yen is about a hundred bucks or so. And she's like, or he says, well, you're just trying to take me. Like you're just another person trying to get my money. And she follows him outside saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. You don't have to pay right now. And then he says, uh, well, will you forgive me for this? And then he just grabs her tits. And she says, I think I can forgive you for that. You're like, what is going on here? Yeah, I was re- like, I was like, dude, I get you're trying to make your move. Um, but... Uh, that's not exactly the move to make. I mean, if if you're going to do that, instead of grabbing her boob, at least be romantic about it and like try to kiss her or something. Right. It, it's just a real honk kind of move. There is no subtlety to it at all. And then once she says, oh, I think I can forgive you, uh, he just fucks off and uh, ends up like having another pain. And then he gets taken inside the cabaret where some pretty ladies dance and they feed him spaghetti. And there's one dressed up like a schoolgirl. And then uh, we realize that this is all a big shakedown because some bouncer comes out and they take all his money and he gets, you know, tossed out on the street, but not before they make him sign an IOU or use his thumbprint to uh, verify an IOU where he now owes them 500,000 yen, which was all the money he was supposed to collect for the day, which they have now stolen. And yeah. And once again, it goes into a weaker person being taken advantage of and abused, which is a very common thing that you see in a lot of these Japanese movies, whether it's his mom doing it to him, his employer doing it to him. Or now these people who run this very shady business doing it to him. Yeah, and as soon as he gets kicked out, to your point, he gets a phone call, back-to-back phone calls. One from his boss saying, hey, where's the money you owe me? And then his mother calling saying, hey, where's that money you were going to give me? And then uh, Karu's brother shows up and kicks him in the face for coming on to his sister. And the kid yells, uh, hey, uh, this guy's a killer when a cop shows up. And now Yuji is on the run from a cop, even though he hasn't done anything wrong. And then uh, elsewhere, as he's being chased by police, we see that our stripe girl, who has been you know painting a stripe across part of the city, meets up with another stripe girl. And they're... they're lines meet and a barrier falls over the city like uh, under the dome kind of yeah and it severs one dude's dick who's taking a piss it cuts in half uh, a couple that was screwing near a wall and 
uh, cuts another cop like right down the middle. And then we get maybe the latest title card I've ever seen in a movie. Where after all of that happens and blood is spurting everywhere and you realize that this town or the, this part of the town is now under this, you know, invisible barrier. Then you get the splash of, you know, Nishimura's Kodoku meatball machine. And, and you're like, you know, like yeah. throwing up oh. the devil horns. And then it's also like. I've been in this movie for a long time now. Uh, this is kind of odd for you to have your title screen now. Yeah, it's it's at least a third of the way through the movie that it happens. And which another thing is, <laughs> in fact, my note there was, I love Nishimura. It's, <laughs> it is just nonsense, but it's the kind of nonsense I really like of, of like, Oh, we haven't done a title yet. Uh, just throw it in after the guy's dick gets cut off and, and spurts, I don't know, a gallon and a half of blood in his own face. That seems like the time to do your title. Yeah, it was, it was very strange. I, w- I was slightly taken aback because I was just like, wait, what? Why? Wait, huh? I'm confused. Why are we doing this now? But it works. Yeah, it's it's real fun. Unfortunately, right on the back of this is some unfortunate blackface, which is another thing that is more okay in Japanese cinema because it's not. It's like a, it's an ad for um, a a debt collection place, the Nico Nico Debt Collection, and yeah, it's just a dude in full body you know, like brown makeup and he's supposed to be like some Islander or something with, you know, the leopard loincloth and a bone for a club and the whole shit. And it's again, one of those things of like, ugh, well, this is unfortunate. I was having such a good time and now I got to think about like how to reconcile my feelings about this. Uh, how about we just get back to the guy whose dick got cut off. That was more comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, it is one of the the worst side effects, but also in Japan they have less racism on a daily basis because they are primarily one culture. That right. it's it's not like when you buy a movie here and it has subtitles for French and Spanish and all that. No, I can't buy Godzilla movies on Blu-ray over there because there's no English subtitles because there's no reason for them to do an English subtitle. <laughs> right. Right. It's like we're an island nation. And how about you go fuck yourself with yeah. your subtitles? How dare you even ask me for that? I don't care if you want Matango on Blu-ray, Jerry. No. Get out of here. Yeah, oh, man. God, Matango. Anyway. It's one of my uh, favorite movies of all time. It's... I I found at one point there was someone selling like a uh, a toy of like one of the mushroom people, and I was like, huh, that looks real good. That seems like thirty bucks I, I shouldn't spend, but I kind of want it. I I actually have uh I've got two figures. I've got one of the mushroom with one of the mushroom guys, and then one of uh the guy in the the red who shows up. Oh right. Yeah, I've got one of him also. Yeah, that's a crazy. That's another movie I've got on the short list. I think um, dibs. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I I think that the next episode is is probably going to be quite an. 
Oh, yeah. So, uh, but I wanted to do some splatter for the the return. Anyway, speaking of, you got you got to break it up a little bit, right? Right. Like you can't. The last thing we did was Thirst, and that that's a great movie, no question about it. But you know, it's a little more serious. Uh, yeah. And uh, this time around, I want to do you know a guy getting his dick cut off by an invisible barrier, and so. When we, after we get done with the unfortunate blackface, Yuji wakes up in jail and then, uh, he sees a red glow through the window and one of the stripe girls shows up and, uh, like as, as some cops are fleeing from her and she erupts into a bunch of pods, which start making necroborgs. And this is happening all over the city where a bunch of these stripe girls who have been, you know, working in tandem to create this barrier are now bursting into parasites, flying parasites that attach to skulls. And unlike the um, the original meatball machine, they don't attach to your chest. They sit on top of your skull, but you still get the drilling into the eyes and the biomechanical body horror stuff uh, through all of the film. And of course our buddy Yuji gets uh, one of these necroborgs attached to him too. But because he's got the cancer, it kills the necroborg parasite. So instead of drilling into his eyes, it just kind of drills into his head and he becomes an, a necroborg with pretty rocking horns. Uh, as opposed to spikes coming out of his eyes. Yeah, pretty much. And he he looks more like um, he has a very anime look. Very much so. Like th- this is a small step away from being an anime film, completely. Um, and I don't know how. Maybe no step at all. Maybe it's just the fact that it's not animated. Is the only difference, but it it might as well be, um, because we have all right a couple of things that I absolutely adore in in this moment. We have the local militia show up, the police force to fight the necroborg uh, in the jail cell, not Yuji, but another one, and it's a team of. There's one guy with a sword. There's a lady with a jump rope. Um, there's uh, my, my favorite is the Jackie Chan ripoff who, who fights with stools. And he then sh- later on does the, the drunken master thing. It is ridiculously funny to me. The, the, the fact that his weapons are stools is just one of those little touches that I absolutely adore in this movie. And for all the unfortunate blackface, you have Jackie Chan ripoff fighting people with a couple of milk stools, uh, and and a lady with a, a you know a jump rope as her weapon. And I'm like, this is ridiculous, and I love it. And- yeah, the the rope part, I was like, lady, get a better weapon. Like, come on. Well, so. Yuji ends up escaping while these, uh, you know, our crack team of Kung Fu police officers fight the other Necroborg there. And Yuji sees 
a couple of other Necroborgs fighting. And then we get the exposition dump of like, oh, here's what's happening. These aliens have invaded and they're infecting people with these, uh, these pods. And then they fight each other. And, you know, it's basically the premise of the first film all over again. But at least now Yuji is uh, uh, up to snuff. And so he ends up fighting his former boss, who is now a Necrobor, as well as his boss's, I assume, secretary, um, who always uh, cut her hair or was was playing with her hair and scissors uh, earlier in the film. And the other distinction between this and the original Meatball Machine is you become a Necroborg that is somehow related to something you were obsessed with. So the lady Necroborg here has scissors, like giant fleshy scissors uh, for one hand, and the other dude uh, was what? It was just like he had tentacles that grabbed you. And Yeah, his was kind of uh, an awkward letdown. Yeah, it, it, it we'll get to a much cooler example of this later. But then the tourists uh, who, like this tourist couple that had seen Yuji earlier, like pre-Necroborg Yuji, being harassed by the cops and thought he was a killer have their heads cut off and their heads are attached by the necroborg boss to what is essentially Ebola, which he throws at yuji and now yuji has these two decapitated heads that are somehow still alive because of necroborg magic apologizing to him for accusing him of being a killer which again is just crazy nishimura stuff that yeah, I love. Just odd. I, I, like I started to try to like go. Wait, would they still have enough conscience from the aliens? I know the aliens said that they get control of the the people's memories, but then I was like, you know what, Jerry, just stop. Just let this happen. Yeah, th- th- this is a movie that not so much you you watch as an active participant. You just let the whole movie happen to you, and then afterwards you pick up the pieces and try to figure out what the hell it was that you just saw. Um, but yeah, so there's the boss has a fist made of fists, which is awesome. And uh, anyway, Yuji realizes that his thing is that he really liked this samurai instruction show, I think. And he has a pretty kick ass sword that comes out of his hand. And so he kills his boss. And then. Uh, Yuji goes, uh, oh, the huh, Yuji ends up going to Kaori. Uh, I keep wanting to say Kaori, it's Ka- Kaoru. Uh, Kaoru's Kaoru, Kaoru, Kaoru. All right, don't ask me, I'm I'm in a worse position than you are for that. Yeah. I, th- I feel like if I mispronounce it enough times eventually i'll make my way around to a correct pronunciation but he goes uh to koru's house and she is there with her brother what kicked yuji in the head and uh her sister and then car dude the one that assaulted uh koru earlier busts in and he has now become part car and also has uh, Haze, the bookstore owner, 
as part of his chassis so that he's kind of riding around on this dude, you kind of have to see it. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's like completely unnecessary to him, but it's just there. Yeah, it's like it, like the bookstore owner has become the sidecar for the car person that this kind of douchebag has become. And he, uh, so the car dude, uh, straight up murders, uh, Koru's brother and then puts Koru and Koru's sister on his body in like a, a seat, a car seat made of people. Yeah, uses the arms from the kid to hold her down. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And Yuji gets there in time to see them escape. And as he ends up chasing after him, like grabs hold, jumps on this little back end where Hase, the bookstore owner, uh, and we get a bit of dark comedy here where every time... Uh, Yuji is shifting or trying to use him for balance or leverage or whatever. He's pushing the guy's face into the asphalt, uh, which is, of course, causing a, a great deal of blood to fly up. And then, uh, while that's going on, our militia, our karate militia force has decided that they're going to go take care of business around town and save as many people as they can. They end up going to the cabaret where we have a booby necroborg that shoots breast milk at people. We have the schoolgirl uh, necroborg, which is probably the coolest one because it's like she's got eyes on her elbows and it's just a real weird looking design. And then we have, who else is there? Uh, we have the one with the fork hand that was feeding um Is she the Yuji. one that's in the leopard bikini that does all the cool bending and shit throughout the fight? I think that's a different one. It's really hard to tell in this scene. Yeah, it's just a bunch of like semi-sexy necroborgs romping around and, and fighting with uh these police uh militia folks and this is where we also get the Jackie Chan drunken master moment which i was like is this a Jackie Chan ripoff because he kind of looks like Jackie Chan and he's got the stools and as soon as he did the drunken master thing i was like all right just that's the, all the confirmation i needed nishimura yeah. is just having a goof on Jackie Chan also while the uh, the chick who was dressed up as an angel, it's very cool how she's set up. Kind of disappointed I didn't get to see her as a necroborg. Yeah, she's just murdered. Um, but it is all wrapped in like Christmas lights or, you know, uh, lights of some string lights and, and whatnot. It, it's this whole sequence is one of those things of like, yep, this is a Nishimura film, all right. Um, as soon as the booby necroborg is like spraying uh you know her nipple nozzles all <laughs> over the one dude and who yells you can't stop me with your breast milk i was like yep all right uh this is not something you're gonna see in every film we have arrived yep and so 
we're kind of cutting back and forth between this fight and at the cabaret with all uh, the karate dudes. And we also have Yuji trying to save uh, Koru, who eventually the bike Necroborg shakes Yuji off. And <laughs> Koru then takes situation the situation in hand by taking off her top using her shirt as sort of a a bit for the car dude and then takes off her bra so she is now topless riding this car necroborg like a horse which she has blinded so she yells i'm in control now and i there's part of me that wondered, like, is this Nishimura trying to be somewhat feminist? Because it's not working. No, it's not. It, it maybe would have worked had it not been for the multiple, multiple, multiple gratuitous shots of just her breast bouncing up and down. Right. Right. Like, if she would have done, if she would have just taken off the shirt and just done the shirt and kept the bra on. I probably would have been more on that. And then when it goes to the bra, I'm like, eh, okay, I, I, I don't know about this. And I probably could have stayed with it for a bit, but they just go way too gratuitous. But there is one shot that's amazing when it goes from her boob to the necrobore. Yes. Boob. That shot is worth it for me to be like, okay, you really shouldn't be this gratuitous, but I really like that shot. But at least you're having some fun with it, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's clearly for fun. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not the most outrageous thing you're ever going to see in a in a Japanese horror film for sure. It, but it is notably not as feminist as I think maybe Nishimura thinks it is. Uh, but so Yuji, who has been shaken off, he shows up at the cabaret and starts killing the sexy Necroborgs. And the militia is like, hey, you kick ass and you're fighting on our side. So they kill all of them except for the booby Necroborg who adjusts her nipples, like changes the dial on her nipples so that she's not spraying breast milk anymore. Now she is firing bullets out of her boobies. And the chief of the karate force is like, hey, I'll sacrifice myself so that you guys can live. And he stands up and the sexy booby Necroborg shoots him with her boobies um, until uh, Yuji has time to kind of rush her and murder her as well. And meanwhile, Haze, the bookstore owner, is like, hey, uh, Koru, what you need to do is drive this bike Necroborg into the Guru Necroborg, who is the the guy that was in charge of the Empowerment Center. And so she drives bike Necroborg into Guru Necroborg, jumps off of him at the last minute to kind of skate away on top of Hase with her sister, and then they hide in a in the empowerment center. And the karate team and Yuji show up. And here we have the big final battle where 
the the bike necroborg kills the guru necroborg and then the karate guys decide they're gonna fight bike necroborg so that yuji can go save uh koru who has now been infected by a pod that is that was hanging out inside the um the empowerment center and has made a hybrid Koru and Koru's sister Necroborg because it looked like her sister's head was kind of in the middle of her gut. And then she spears Yuji, drags him to her, and says, You have to kill me. And meanwhile, there are people who are trapped on the inside of the the glass or the, the dome that they're, they're stuck inside. And when they touch it, it sends up negative thoughts. Uh, you know, it's like all kinds of, of aggressive and negative emotions that are, are being, you know, one assumes collected here. Which I, I like, I'm one, I guess this will be more towards the end, but I'm trying to figure out the was the objective to collect negative thoughts or was the objective to breed these aliens or is the one weakness the aliens have for their breeding process negative thoughts and they were forced to leave? No, my take on it, because essentially what happens is the uh, Koru and... Um, Yuji, who are in this like death embrace, Koru uh, gets her her uh, head shattered by Yuji, and then this like cocoon thing forms around them, which turns into this big ship that blows up the rest of this neighborhood or the area under the dome. And then all of that gets swirled up and the jar, which, you know, this whole thing is part of this greater jar that gets plugged into a spaceship. And my impression of this was that the reason humans made such good breeding grounds for this is because of all that negativity and like the negativity and confusion and doubt and all that stuff is what made them susceptible uh, to this kind of invasion. And so the movie ends with a commercial for the juice that is made from collecting all these people who have bred these parasites, and the parasites are then basically ground down into this juice that makes, I don't know, makes you excited or something. Okay. But so I'm still confused as to the hell was the point of all the people outside the glass doing their negative thoughts and that going in there. If they still need to grind down the parasites to get the, the, to make the juice, like, is that seasoning? or something i mean I, I like i don't have a lot of good answers here unfortunately it seems like what 
Nishimura is saying is that the reason that aliens could use us to turn into their own kind of corporate soft drink is because we are, as a species, eaten up with all these negative emotions that make us the perfect hosts for these parasites, which are ultimately used for, you know, this necrojuice stuff. Yeah, and I want to go back to uh, the beginning of it, showing a human grinding up frogs and other animals is basically the exact same thing as the end of the movie where they're uh, they, which is a higher power than us, and we, who are a higher power than frogs and centipedes, it's a constant, whoever's the higher power gets to use the lower power. Right. It's yeah, there there so is it yeah. begins and ends the same way. The beginning is showing us humans doing that to a lower form, and then the ending is the aliens as the higher power doing it to the lower form of humans. Right. I which think. I did not get until you started talking, trying to explain it to me, and then I was like, Okay, well, I can make this connection. So at least I feel like it's less just there because. Yes. And, and, right. I, I mean, again, th- this Maybe. is my this is my best theory about this. Um, it's certainly something about commercialism. It's certainly something about human negativity. You know. Profit. I don't know. I don't know where, like, I need Nishimura to say, no, 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 this is what I meant. And even then, I'm not sure if I would believe him. But, all right, so here's the problem, ultimately, with Nishimura as a director, is that he's got a lot of ideas. I don't know that he he gets all of them out. Uh, I think that he is often too prone to going for the gag, as opposed to, like, Sono is almost entirely thematic. You know, if anything, he is somewhat obtuse, uh, or his films can be a little obtuse, because they're all in service to this larger idea of what the film is about. Whereas Nishimura gets distracted by boobies and blood and forgets to make sure that everything makes sense. Correct. Like, ultimately, I enjoy... The original Meatball Machine, the 2005 Meatball Machine, more than I enjoy the sequel because the first one feels like it has, it is trying to, the drama in it and the personal story of what's going on is trying to get you to feel something as to where the second one really loses that between all the, the gratuity of it, gratuitous of it. The, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, and, I don't it, – it's tough for me to to decide which I like more because I think you're right. I think the original Meatball Machine – The second one's a, a is more entertaining as a watch. Yeah. Like it's it – like it's – put it this way. They're both popcorn films, but that first one has something there that is that is – just seems deeper. Like someone threw some kind of extra cheddar in the middle of it. And when you get to that cheddar, you're like, Oh wow, hold up. There's something here. There's, I feel for these people as to where with the other one, with the other one, everything's coated in cheddar. So you can't tell you hit a spot of special cheddar. 
Right, right. It is the the jalapeno popper effect. <laughs> Whereas uh, I think Kodaku is like is more like a cheese stick. It's like, look, this is nothing but cheese. There is no surprise here. Maybe you can dip in a little marinara, and that's about all you're going to get in terms of uh, uh, a little variety. But there is something I do like about the the um, it, it's less than the sum of its parts. Ultimately, like the movie as a whole, I don't know works as well as the original Meatball Machine, but it's filled with stuff like the Jackie Chan gag. The bike Necroborg is ridiculous and crazy. Um, there's, you know, the breast milk machine gun boobs. Stuff like that where I'm just like, man, I know that this isn't in any way, you know, politically correct or, uh, or, or even logical. It's just so crazy and inventive and weird that I love that part of it. I like the fact that it gets bananas and yeah, it, 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 it's something that I struggle with, with, uh, with Nishimura is, do I like his movies because they're actually good or do I like his movies because I've never seen anything like them? Yeah, it's definitely a, a tug of war when you watch these movies. Cause like, obviously you're not going to, you're not going to put any of his movies in the same category as Sono, but there are some movies that, of his that you could put in the same category as Takashi Miike, but then Takashi Miike can do both. He can do yeah. something deep like Sono, and then he can do something crazy like Meatball Machine. And it's kind of like Takashi Miike is the middle ground between these two people. Um, I'm not saying he's anywhere near as good at the, the poetry of a movie as Sono, but when you look at things like Audition, you can kind of go, wow, there's something amazing here as compared to, you know, Meatball Machine. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're right. I think that there is something going on under, like, Audition, I think, is a great film because it can work on two different levels or two that I'm aware of of like well you can either take it literally and that the events of the movie are the events of the movie or it can be this completely psychological film in which it's a guy justifying why uh you know he can't he can't successfully maintain a relationship with this girl and that it, it becomes you know a theater of the mind sort of film at a certain point and and even with Ichi the Killer or something like that, um, or even just a grindhouse film like Thirteen Assassins, yeah. Then, it, but Mike elevates that material because he's so good at it. Yeah, or look at the happiness of the K word that I can never Katakuris, pronounce correctly. Yeah, yeah, Katamari. Um, sure, Katamari Damasi. <laughs> happiness of the Katamari Damasis. Yeah, you you look at something like that, and it's just. it's on a different level. Like, yes, it's wacky. It's crazy. It's got really messed up stuff in it, but you can dig into it and have a discussion on it as to where with meatball machine and its sequel, we really have to dig deep to really pull things out to talk about and have a discussion. That's more than just, 
um, blood, gore, and titties. Right. And the other thing about me, okay, just it's something that I always like to point out. Um, he has only directed one film this year, which is strange. Uh, last, really? Yeah. Slacking. I know. Last year he did uh, the Idol, uh, Idol Cross Warrior series, television series, Blade of the Immortal, which is pretty rockin'. Yes. And then JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, the adaptation of that anime, uh, called Diamond is Unbreakable Chapter 1. And yeah, JoJo is out there. Right. So he did the live-action adaptation of that, and then this year he's done a film called Laplace's Witch, which I, I have not seen. It only opened uh, about three months ago in uh, in Japan but is a mystery thriller and not uh, a, a manga adaptation and or a grindhouse samurai film. And Interesting. Yeah, I I mean, good lord, that guy, he, he makes about two to three movies a year and almost all, like, not all of them are fantastic, but one out of three is going to be completely great. Yeah, there's like, he's definitely, he was, he was my first like take into the, the craziness that was Japanese cinema. When I had first, when I had watched my first Mike film, I immediately was like, I have to just watch more. And, you know, and then went down this long rabbit hole of Gozu and Detective Story and just from there started going to these other directors. And like Mike is for a lot of people your introduction because of Audition and yeah. Itchy the Killer. Yeah. And it's crazy that this guy also did like the same year he did Audition. He did um, Dead or Alive, you know, which is this kind of and this weird action comedy movie and yeah he mike loves doing crime movies um like where it this like yakuza crime detective stuff and he's really good at it if you want to see something that's that's not fully horror that goes into his ability to do grimy action Oh man, you have a, a buffet awaiting you. Right. Or just watch you cheat the killer again, because that movie will never fail to disturb you. Yeah, right. that's true. Or if you want to get crazy and you just want to really, really be messed up, watch Gozu. Yeah. Yeah. Gozu's real fucked up. Uh but if you want to watch just one of the best like samurai films this side of the Seven Samurai, just watch Thirteen Assassins. That's yes. one of the most phenomenal, like modern day Shinbara films. It, I was incredible. blown away by that movie because that that I was just like, Mike can do this, right? Like, wow! Like he put on a just absolutely great samurai movie. Yeah, and <laughs> and in the same year, did Zebra Man Two: Attack on Zebra City. So you tell me. <laughs> yeah, the if you start going through like at one point I was like, you know what? I'm gonna watch every Mike movie. Nope. 
Yeah, I, how that could you? Out, that is that is out the door. I would literally never watch another movie again unless I can outlive his uh, ability to make movies. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the guy is incredibly prolific. Some of it is just these weirdo manga adaptations that you couldn't possibly care about if you're somebody like me. But the other side of it is, like, you know, again, it's you know, uh, Blade of the Immortal and 13 Assassins and Gozu and Ichi the Killer. and Which Blade of the Immortal is a manga adaptation. Yeah, but but fits more in line with... Correct. You know, his, his seedier stuff. Like, this is a guy who directed the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney live-action film and also did Ichi the Killer, which begins with come turning into the title so yeah the guy can do everything he really can he he and it almost seems like he does a lot of director for hire jobs just so he can go out there and then do these ridiculous movies because at some point you have to sit down and go who is paying for all of this yeah that that's what i i end up wondering about Mike in particular is why does he do the the kind of more bizarre uh, films that he does? It doesn't. It, it, does he need the money? Does he owe money to the mob? Like, what is <laughs> what is driving weird? him? When you say, "Why does he do these bizarre movies?" You're actually talking about his the stuff that the, would right. be normal in in society as compared to. His really out there stuff, right? So it's yeah, a very right. strange thing. Yeah, so you're just like, why would he do these more director for hire movies? And it, and to be honest, if you don't know, Japan's uh, movie system does not work the same way America does. Their big budget movies are like the top of low budget movie here. Like or or maybe middle ground budget, but they they work on much smaller budgets and they work much faster. Yeah, and which is why Miyuki does two or three movies a year. And, Correct. But it does seem to alternate. Like he'll do essentially like, hey, here's my Grindhouse movie, and then here's the you know Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney adaptation, both of which I'm interested in, strangely, but uh, you know. It's, I just want to see what Mike does with a courtroom drama. Right. Particularly one that comes from such silly source material. And from what I've seen of, uh, of the film, I haven't seen the movie itself, but everything I've seen of it is that it takes a lot of that, you know, objection, you know, that kind of stuff and, and really plays with it. Oh my God. It'll be like that scene. Uh, do you know, what do you, do you know anything about death note? Not the American one, but like, did you watch the two Japanese live action death note movies? I no, I have, um, are there only two? Cause I've, there's, there's L. there is, there is a third one, which is called L save the world, but right. that's a completely spin off thing that it, it has nothing to do with death note. Okay. So um, but no, the first I haven't two seen movies are fantastic, but there's a scene in there where, in the the manga, it works because it's just a manga. But he's eating chips, and he's taught, and he's got like this tiny TV in the bag of chips, and he's talking. And I'll take a chip, and I'll eat it, and it it was hilarious. And then when it came around for the like anime in the movie, they kept those in, and it just makes me go, I want to see Mike do the objection thing like that. Mm-hmm. And I think 
I think that's how it goes. So, uh, yeah, it's, oh man, that guy, son of a bitch. Uh, but that's not about, uh, meatball machine, obviously. Uh, look, Jerry, thank you so much. I think, I think, I think we've reached a conclusion here. Um, but it was, it was fun, not just to talk about meatball machine, but just to kind of generally, uh, talk about, you know, some of the stuff about, uh, Japanese cinema that we both are perplexed by and, and dearly love. And I think, um, yeah, it it just goes to show that there there is a, a certain je ne sais quoi, as the Japanese would say, uh, about their aesthetic, the, their method of storytelling that, for both of us, I believe, makes makes watching those films more compelling than like I'm far more likely to watch. Uh, some Japanese adaptation of Slender Man than I am the American Slender Man because I have no idea what the fuck the Japanese would do with it. And I have a pretty good idea what Hollywood would do with it. Yeah. It, I will say that the thing about Japanese cinema that I love is they're still very much okay with experimentation. And that's really what it is that sets them apart is you don't, you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what to expect. Even like the director can do one thing and then go do something completely different. And you're just like, wow. And it's, it's the ability to experiment and being allowed to do that experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I, I think that because you have directors like me, who is still trying to do interesting stuff. Like the guy is, uh, you know, probably 70 years old at this point and is still trying to figure out how to make movies interesting. And then you see something like ready player one, the latest Spielberg joint. And it's like, yeah, it's fine. It's entertaining, but I don't know that it it's feels... cookie cutter though. Right. It is, it is entirely predictable as a film and as a story and, and leans into, it's pop culture references and that's fine. But as soon as I got done, uh, you know, <laughs> watching, uh, ready player one, I was like, Hey, that was entertaining. Did not stick with me at all. If I had to go back and give you the details of that movie, I couldn't, but yeah, I w you're just like, okay, that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was fine. But if you want me to tell you my takeaways from meatball machine Kodaku, Oh, I can tell you some stories. I can, these eyes have seen some shit now. <laughs> yeah, like they're like even there's going to be a part when someone's listening to this and you're uh, when you're explaining the motorcycle guy and the Cabernet fight and you're kind of having to bounce between them that it's it's almost like you need to put a stop in there and be like, "Are you still with us, kids?" Cuz it's just that insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh it is. It it's crazy. And I encourage people um to watch both of these films. I, I would I I would say expect Meatball Machine to be a little more movie a movie and Kodoku to be more of a like let's just crack a couple of beers here and and see what happens. Um so yeah, it's it, it's a fascinating pair of films, and uh, I, I was excited to 
go back and, and revisit them for completely different reasons. And, um, Jerry, uh, what else, uh, would you like to pimp while, while we're closing up shop here? Uh, let me see here. We are in kill the cast. We are doing a long running horror coliseum, putting uh, nightmare on Elm street series versus the Friday the 13th franchise against each other in the horror coliseum style. So that's very fun. Uh, the next underwater kaiju from outer space podcast will be Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, the Heisei one. So mm-hmm. get your time machine boots ready. And um, other than that, that's all I've got. I've done a lot of guest spots here recently that are popping up everywhere. So you'll you'll see me floating around. But I want to thank you for letting me come on here, Hero Go Show, and talk about uh, these movies because I, I I love Japanese and I love out there darker side of of the cookie jar stuff. And these two were definitely it. I'm glad I got, finally got to see Kodoku. Been wanting to see that since it came out last year. And I can't wait to come back and tackle more of these Japanese ones. Yeah. Uh, Because not only am I a fan of the show, a big fan of the show, but I I absolutely was ecstatic to come on here. Well, man, uh, we will definitely do it again. Um, And and strangely, speaking of King Ghidorah, uh, he will be making an appearance on this very episode as Court and I um, will will be discussing that on the G-Spot this episode. Um, and I, as I've mentioned on one of the Facebook pages, uh, my takeaway from that is that Rodan is just a jerk. No getting around it. Rodan is Wait, kind of an asshole. Which, which one are you doing? Cause well, I'm a, I, which one are you, are you on now? This is on? the 64. Like we're doing this all in order. So this is OG. Okay. So this is three headed monster. Yeah. This is Gator of the three headed okay, monster. Yeah. Rodan's a dick. Rodan, yeah, Rodan's yeah, a complete asshole. 100%. And, uh, to be fair, if I had my design changed from a amazing, evil-looking suit in Rodan to the goofiness it becomes when he has to pair up with Godzilla, I'd be a dick too. Yeah, but it, like his, the entire move set that he has is I got this, you know, spiny belly. And also, I'm just going to peck your head. And that's the real jerk move to me. It's yeah. Not, it's not deadly. It's just like, would you stop that, Rodan, please? Okay, I can't argue with you there. That is pretty That is pretty annoying. Uh, it's about as annoying as watching the scene in Godzilla versus the sea monster. Wait, was it in Sea Monster that he fights the condor thing? Or was that... Godzilla uh was that son of Godzilla uh that might be son of I don't remember uh that from sea monster but I could have that wrong it's been a while since I've seen sea monster but we're we're working our way towards that I think uh uh we're getting into the champion series now oh snap that'll be fun yeah it's we're edging our way out of the I mean certainly Ghidorah is is one of the first examples of we're just going to throw a bunch of monsters together and see what the fuck happens in this movie. Yeah, I actually uh, hit up court and I was like, hey, do you want to do a non-Godzilla movie on Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space? Because I know you're doing the Godzilla ones with Bo. And he actually still chose a Godzilla movie. 
He was like, ah, there's there's one I want to do that I would like a full episode to do that I don't think we'll do a full episode on for Hero Hero Ghost Show. So I'm going to do that. And I was like, okay, was not expecting that, but sure. Which makes me want to say, hey, Bo, if there's a non-Godzilla one you want to do on Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, let us know. I I certainly will. Let let me think about that one because I... uh... There are there are several that I am I'm interested in, and a hundred percent you will be back here for uh, Matanga. Yeah, uh, Matango is one that I, I will we'll be covering on Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space at some point. But I told them I was like, guys, I love this movie so much that I don't want to do it yet. I want to put it far off so that we can talk about it. Like once we have so much experience under our belt that we walk in that and just crush it and i love that movie so much that i think the com I w- i'm still gonna do it twice because i think the conversation you and i will have will be very different from the conversation i will have on there yeah because both of us are going to come at it from a place of hey you know we are 100 percent both adoring this this film and it, it's all its weirdness so uh and, and to me it's the only movie that really rivals the amount of paranoia that you will see in like John Carpenter's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there is some DNA there for sure. It, it's not just a monster movie. And Correct. It, yeah, there is, it's a really interesting film. So a little bit of a tease there for, uh, for listeners. We'll do that in the coming, uh, in the coming weeks. And, uh, and that's it, Jerry. I appreciate you, uh, hanging out for so long to talk about two movies that, we almost uh, lapped in terms of length, but uh, but padded it out with, uh, I would argue, some fantastic discussion of Sono and Mike and, and whatnot. So um, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. And there you have it, folks. That is the August episode of Hero Hero Go Show. We will be back next month with another episode uh, i'm still working out the the movie i think i i know what we're gonna do it's probably gonna be quite an but not entirely sure yet uh at any rate hope you enjoyed it uh as always if you want to get in touch with me uh hop over to the facebook group uh legion podcasts uh on facebook or uh facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash devour the podcast is where you can find all the hero hero go show uh posts these days and, um, yeah, uh, on Twitter at Legion podcasts and, uh, that's it. Or that'll do it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm out of here in the meantime, here is Sakaichi.